Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do on officehours.global. Our first hour is always a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer your audience-submitted questions. The second hour, typically a deeper dive into a topic, and today we're going to discuss the new and very popular Sony camera, the FR7 pan-tilt zoom unit, so we're excited about that. If you have interesting questions about that or just want to learn more about it, stick around for our second hour, but right now it's time for the first hour. So, Mitch... What have we got today? Thank you, Bill. First in, Bo Cordell from Charleston, South Carolina. My Blackmagic Design Pocket 6K is great, but I'm tired of constantly being out of focus on Zoom calls. If I wanted the comparable or cheaper Sony with continuous autofocus, what's a good choice? Chris Fenwick's going to start us off here. Chris? So, Bo, I know you know this, but some people may not. Uh, when you say out of focus, I realize by your question you're saying you're looking for a camera with autofocus. However, if you ha do have a camera like what I have that doesn't have autofocus, you can improve your depth of field. And I had to do it when I got my 6K uh, by raising the light level, which will uh, uh, close the iris and improve the depth of field. So I know you're talking about, you mentioned being out of focus. That will help you appear to be in focus more often, but um, I'll let the others talk about the, the other camera options. Mitchell's going next. Mitchell? Yeah, it's no doubt. I'm a uh, Sony fanboy, and uh, there is that autofocus that does this so well, and that's hard to ignore. Um, as far as specific Sony cameras, uh, this is a ZV-E10, and it has the same autofocus that my FX3 does. So starting here at the ZV-E10, which is about $1,000, and of course, you got to spend some money for a lens, uh, that's a good place to start, but uh, for general, nice, really nice. Uh, the FX3 is good, probably overkill, and the FX30, which they just announced uh, as the cheaper version of the three, uh, both uh, excellent choices from the Sony. Good, good information. Alex? Yeah, if you were looking for the exact uh, same uh, sensor as the, F as the FR7 that we have here, there's the FX6, but that's a pretty expensive way to go for just a web camera. Um, as, as Mitchell said, FX3 does well, um, and also the, the FX30, we, we have a growing number of people in our, in our group that are using the FX30 as their webcam. Um, it is a Super 35, so exactly the same as the 6K, and it will have that autofocus um, to make that actually work. So I think the FX30 is probably the one that the heir apparent <laughs> you know, to that, depending on what we see later this afternoon as or later this morning uh, with, uh, uh, you know, if, if Blackmagic brought in some kind of autofocus solution, then we'll take a look at that in the coming weeks. Thanks for the question, Bo. Let's move on to the next one. This one's in for me, and I want to know, what do you use for noise reduction for your panelist audio? Chris Fenwick's going to start us out. Chris? So, Mitch, we were talking about this a little earlier. Um, I use the MixPre with the, with the noise assist. Um, and I realized that uh, it's a buy once, cry once kind of issue. Um, and in your system, um, what you might want to do is try and build out a system that allows you to use some sort of third-party plugin. Once you get into that, as you know, you know you have tons, tons of options. My it, every time I've tried to do that, I find that the latency is annoying to me. And the, the, what I'm doing with my mix pre is I'm listening to myself um, directly off the, the mic pre so there's no latency out to the world, whatever, and, and whatnot. But possibly getting into something where you can install a plug-in, a hardware uh, solution with a plug-in, then that opens tons of options for you. Courtney. 
Well, MIMAX Pre 3 is before they allowed uh, the noise reduction plug-in, so I'm not going to plunk down my $300 for that. So what I'd use is just Zoom. Uh, go into the control panel and you set it uh, over here to uh, Zoom Optimized Audio. And uh, Mickey advised me to put it at low, but you can adjust it depending upon the amount of background sound you have. And then, um, then you can switch it over to Music for Musicians. Then the uh, switch appears on your screen to turn it on or off. And when you, whenever you turn it um, off, it'll go to the settings that you had uh, when you set it up for this. So that's how I set mine. Tom Ferguson. Okay, the sound device is mixed pre with noise assist. And I, on Zoom, have original sound on. Mitchell Hill. I've been hovering around this issue for easily two years and uh, with the intention of trying to make it better. And I noticed that MixPre is the uh, the preferred choice. Um, I've decided uh, when I started dealing with the uh, the amount of background noise is to start with the room first. Uh, start adding uh, things to the room to, to create diffusion and sound absorption. Start there and you eliminate some sources of, of the noise. You're not going to get them all, but you're going to get a lot of them. And then right now, what I've been living with is uh, an Aphex channel with, <clears throat> excuse me, a noise gate in it uh, or an expander. And a noise gate basically is a sensitivity device that uh, mutes the channel when it gets below a certain threshold. Um, it's okay, but it chews a little bit around uh, my voice when I'm starting to talk and when I end talking. Um, I, I'm probably going to end up with a mixed pre of some sort, but my problem is, again, that I want the very best one I can get that uh, will interface with my uh, inline XLR connections. And that means it's got to be an 8 series or a mix pre 10, I believe. So um, I'm still uh, sort of in a uh, quandary as what to do. What I have right now, I consider it to be temporary. I'm looking forward to going to some type of a noise assist uh, that's built into uh, a mix pre. And, and real quick, um, I don't like the idea of plugins only because I can't deal with the latency, as Chris points out. Um, I just see that causing people problems. Alex Lindsay. Yeah, I, I use a lot of these. <laughs> you know, so a lot of hardware ones, software ones. And I will say that I use the Mix Pre because it's the best one so far. Um, you, I'm, I'll, this will be a red pill conversation, but if you listen, Mitchell, to your audio, you'll hear that little click every time you start talking. And that's that gate, you know, stepping in, you know. And so that's something that... That I, I, you know, I wouldn't, I, I've just ruined everybody. Everyone will now listen to Mitch. <laughs> They'll be like, click. I hear the click. I can't stop hearing the click. Um, anyway, so sorry about the red pill there. Um, but the, um, uh, but I think that it's just a lot softer. I had, I owned a lot of cedars. So I've had, I had three of the little stereo cedars and one DNS8. And the problem is they're, they chewed way harder than the Mix Pre. So the Mix Pre actually does a better job. It's not just that it's as good as a Cedar. I believe that it's better. The noise assist that sound, devi sound devices does is better than Cedar um, by a long shot. The algorithm is actually a better solution. And so as a result, you know, I think that I'm hoping that they expand it, make it more available to other manufacturers. I don't know if they will um, because it is by far the best best solution that I've run across in um, a decade of trying to figure out how to get rid of background noise. Chris Fenwick. I can't hear you, Chris. You're muted. That was my noise assist too too strong. Now, um, uh, you mentioned the uh, uh, treating the room. Uh, there's a real beauty to walking into a, a proper uh, studio space where it sounds great. There's a point where I've said that uh, you can actually hear the blood rushing around in your head in a, in a really quiet room. Unfortunately, 
many of us, like I'm sitting in, in literally 270 degrees worth of hard drives and fans and bears on my. So that's just not, it, it's a lot of noise. Um, and also I want to point out, uh, I don't know if you've heard it, Mitch, but if you go on the YouTube and search for my name and Mix Pre, I do a little demo when I first bought the, the Mix Pre with the noise assist. And it was like, it was just astonishing. So I recorded a, a sound file of me going through with it on and off, um, just in a typical day sitting at my desk. And it's, it's really spectacular. You should, you should go check it out. Alex? Yeah, the one thing I'll say also is I will not travel without it. Like, it's one thing to not use it at my house, but when I'm in hotel rooms and traveling, I was traveling last week, uh, it is night and day. <laughs> like, you know, there's just so much going on in the hotel room or so much going on in those areas and you just pull it all out. And it's not perfect a lot of times when it's, but it's much better than, and again, the problem with Zoom's noise assist, it, Zoom's noise assist is probably the best from a software perspective. And if I wasn't using a mix pre, I'd probably just use Zoom's um, because it does a good job, but it chews into it. It, it gets, it. You, you lose your high end. Um, I'll, pretty significantly when you use the zoom the zoom version and that's the thing that i always you just don't hear that resonance that you that, that you hear when when it's not doing that alex how many people of all the people as a as a guess you think use mix pre it's like 50 percent of us oh on the on the panel I don't, I don't know um i mean we can say raise your hand if you're using it so it's it depends on the day but yeah probably about 50 percent. about half of us are using mix pre's yeah interestingly enough though i had an experience just yesterday with my Cedar system, and I have the Cedar plugin for the Universal Audio Apollo Solo, and I got that plugin because I've been doing a good little bit of voiceover stuff here at my desk as opposed to going into the uh, voice booth because it's just circumstantial. And um, yesterday, I had to do a little tiny insert from something I had done with the door closed and my wife was gone, so it was very silent where I live here. And so I'd done most of the recording like that, but this insert, I noticed that the dryer, which is down the hall a little bit from me, was on, and I was really worried. I thought, oh, gosh, that's going to infect it. But I thought, oh, let me just give it a try. It's only a quick four-word insert. I turned it on. I said, yeah, I can hear it. And I was reaching over to fix things, and all of a sudden, it started going away. And then it went entirely away. And I went, what was that? And I've noticed on the cedar, there's a... The, ce a, the cedar takes a couple seconds for it to, to learn. So if, you just, if you're quiet when you turn it on and you have it in learn... Uh, the software version, I think, is in learn mode almost all the time. Yeah, but that's what, what can, surprised me. With the hardware, you hit a button and you say, learn, and you, you're quiet. And then you turn that button off and then it uses that voice, that, I mean, that, that noise pattern. But you can also just leave it on learn all the time. The, the, the advantage of that is that it keeps on adjusting to whatever's out there. The disadvantage of that is that it can be a little slow to, to come up to speed and it can start to wave, you know, as it's finding different things. And so sometimes we, it just depends on what we're doing, but you can either have it in learn mode all the time or turn it on and off with the Cedar. And yeah, again, I think, I think the, the hardware mode thing, it, it was on all the time. And it just saw, it saved my little bit of work there. And I yeah. really appreciated that. That that adaptive listening to fix the noise profile as you go made a lot of sense. We've been on this a while. Let's go to the next question. Next one in from Mark Giuliani from Washington, D.C. Mark asks, Guy, I heard you cleaned up NDI. Could you explain? Guy Cochran, that's a direct pass to you. Hey, and I'm catching that ball. So uh, I was having some problems with my NDI stuttering, and uh, I'm using Ubiquity gear. And I heard Jeff Keithley mention that he had switched over from the Ubiquity line of switches to the uh, Netgear AV line. So these are purpose-built switches that are tuned. So they, when I say tuned, they have profiles for not only NDI, but 
Dante, AES 67, QSIS. And so there's, there's a wizard that lets you go through into these profiles. And so uh, one of the videos that I watched is uh, this one here, which shows you how you can VLAN out uh, and segment. And th this is five minutes of work. Don't, just because this diagram looks, looks uh, uh, you know, complicated, all it's showing is that we got our cameras on the left going into uh, this VLAN, and then we've got our vMix or whatever you're using, Mimo Live or whatever to go in on the other side. So I'm happily uh, plugging along with my machine. So I, I went to the office and grabbed a, another one of these because I have two of them and I set it up just for uh, testing uh, where I put just like that diagram, I put my NDI stuff on the left side. And then on my Mac, what I did was I, I put in a separate NIC. So there's the built-in ethernet and then this is my, my little $30, whatever, uh, you know, one gig USB NIC card. And then I gave it a new address on this new network. So basically what's happening is you're, you're creating a new, a new network. And so it, in, the, in the setup, let me actually jump over to the setup where you guys can see it. Uh, so uh, this will be the actual back end of uh, the uh, net gear. Pull that up here. And so this is what it looks like when you when you go into the uh, the browser, and so I've assigned these ports here as NDI, and I'll I'll put a link into the uh, into the chat for how this is. Uh, there's a video, the one that I just showed with the diagram. So you can see that the green ones are video NDI five, but here's all the other profile templates A67 Dante, and I know a lot of Dante people do this themselves where they have a separate switch, and this is to avoid these packets colliding into each other and multicast flooding ports and things like that. So to assign these ports, uh, you, uh, so I've already built mine, but now I'm going to edit it. And here's where I can say, like, I want number seven now to be NDI as well. So it's it literally as simple as clicking on it once you've assigned the profile. And then what I also did was I said, um, uh, turn it into a server. So now I'm able to have a 10 dot uh, uh, network as well. So um, all those ports that are selected up here are now 10 dots. And so with my Ethernet NIC card in my Mac and my PC, I've, I've now got 10 dot addresses where the rest of my network, which is over here, uh, these other data ports, because you can see over here that this is, these are all data up top and you can see uh, default is data, VLAN one, and these are 192 addresses. And so my N NDI, the, the gist of it is that my NDI is all on this 10 dot. My regular network is set up on this 192, and I just cleaned everything up, and it is so smooth now, and I'm a happy, happy camper. So that's how I cleaned it up is with a. So this is the funny thing is like people might go, hey, that's 600 bucks, you know, to get one of these these things. 600 bucks for all the time that I spent. I mean, it was longer than six hours. I assure you that. So if you've had struggles with NDI or if you've had for home use. Use your own your own switch. You could do Wi-Fi, whatever you want. But man, if you want to use it in production, this is what Jeff Keithley used in the truck that you saw last week. So, uh, I'm a big fan. You can jump on the forums and you can jump on uh, yeah the NDI user groups and you'll see what I'm talking about. Everybody's switching over to these. So happy to uh, to be able to report back that it's smooth. And you're seeing Courtney. You had a follow up right question. Uh, yeah. So so none of the uh, bird dogs or anything that's on that NDI. Uh, network subnet there are exposed to the internet, then they're not accessible from the internet. Is that correct? And it's, only the things that you need to access the internet, like Zoom. Well, what I've done is I've actually done a uh, what they call an NDI bridge. So in NDI 5, there's a new little app called Bridge. And so I can make a PC a bridge and I can either have it um, 
not convert those those cameras or convert them to like H.264, H.265. So they come across as an, another form of stream if I need to push them somewhere else. But yeah, that's how I can hook one network into the other one. So NDI Bridge is the tool that I've been using for that. So they all appear uh, on the other subnet. This has been a really exciting presentation. Thank you, Guy. I know a lot of people who have to deal with network issues and have frustrations with it will really appreciate all that you've just done for that. So thank you and, very much. And uh, our guest, Greg Gibson's coming up and he's, he just bought one from us and he was super happy with it because the Sony FR7s have PoE++. And so this line of switches comes in different models. Some of them have no PoE, but the one to power those cameras so you don't have to run a separate cable is uh, PoE++ and that there's a certain model number you could look it up and it's the one that Sony recommends on their website. So Nick Garrett AV line M4250 is what they're called. Nice. Let's go to the next question. And it's from Steve Yurov in Madison, Wisconsin. How can one tie a Stream Deck button to select a specific audio output in Zoom on Mac OS? Alex is going to help us. Alex? Yeah, what you're looking for is the beta for Companion. So the I think it's Companion 3.0. There is a the beta that you want to download, and then you want to go in and look for the um, the module that is for Zoom OS, ISO OSC, and you can see a lot of buttons there. <laughs> so so you want to look at those buttons, uh, look at what might be useful for you. Um, but but those are the things you want to look at. So um, look for the ISO OSC module in the Companion beta 3.0. I think it's 3.0. Um, that the, download that and take a look at it, and you may find the buttons that you're looking for. Um, and then you can also, of course, you know, step out of that and do direct OSC commands to do that. But the buttons should make it the buttons, the new buttons should make it easier. Steve, we hope that helped you. Let's move to the next question. And it's uh, coming from me. My question is: When using a teleprompter on office hours, what do you keep on the screen? Let's start with Guy here. Guy, what's on your teleprompter screen? So I keep a uh, Zoom Gallery View. Uh, for the most part of it, but on my stream deck, I have a little button that allows me to switch from speaker view to gallery view. So I could, I could, whoever's active speaker, I can kick back over there, whoever I have pinned. And I can't show Mukana, but basically Mukana, our Q&A system is right behind that. And so I can see what question is coming up and I can see the event chat. And the other thing that I keep on the right side is a notepad. So if there's a question that's coming up and there's like three bullet points that I want to hit, I type those out and I make sure that I glance over there and I look to make sure that I hit all my points. Uh, Tom Ferguson. Mm, pretty much the same thing. I keep, uh, I research early questions and keep my dot point notes over on the uh, side, and that way I get better eye contact. Uh, Alex Lindsay. Yeah, I don't have one right now because of I, we're testing this FR7, but, um, but generally what I have there is the person that I'm talking to and oftentimes framed underneath it, I have a different view of Mukana. <laughs> so I have, uh, the, I'm using the teleprompter view and I just have the next question up um, that's, that's sitting there. It's kind of framed uh, so that I can see it there. Mitch Hill. I only have room for a small seven-inch uh, teleprompter. Here it is, right here. It's the uh, the ICAN, and uh, the reason uh, that I'm using it is because it's the only space that I have, and what I'm using it for is uh, for a Interatron, so that I can see everybody and make eye contact. Not enough space on there to put text. There you go. Oh, Guy Cochran. Other thought? Yeah, I will say. 
I will say at the office, uh, we have the larger 24-inch on our one-button studio, and I just keep looking at it and drooling. I mean, it, it is a masterpiece of work. <laughs> I really want one of the larger ones because now you could fit even more. Which So I'm running out of space, so a lot of times I'm dragging people around. So in Zoom, you can move people around so that if you know where the lens is at. In fact, I, I let a little bit of light leak in through behind my camera so I can see the outline of my lens, and I drag people uh, in the gallery view over the top of that lens. So if I want direct eye contact, I'll put them right dead center in the middle. Yeah, and and um, that's why I'm building the 43-inch <laughs> teleprompter is so that I can put some stuff on the outside of it and then have a really big, you know, I'm, I'm kind of building a new set of frames where what I want to do is have the person that I'm talking to or whatever I pin, you know, right in front of the lens and then have the gallery sitting below it and then having, um, and I, I kind of wish that, yeah, anyway. I kind of wish that Zoom would let it give us a little bit more, con- I wish we could control a little bit more of like really organizing what, what we have in front of us, maybe someday in the future. Yeah. For me, I'm trying to get as close to the output to whatever audience I'm speaking to I can get. I'm not sure I'm entirely there because I'm using the um, program feed and there's a little bit of delay between what I'm doing in real time and what actually is showing up on that. But I trained my brain a long time ago when I had to do a stadium announcing gig to be able to kind of shut out a little distraction of what I'm monitoring is a little bit delayed from what I'm actually doing and just power ahead and do the doing. But it's, it's, everybody's a little different. Next question. From Brian Shand in Sydney, Australia. Brian asks, what components are required to build a small stage for a corporate hybrid event? Courtney's going to start us. Courtney? Well, you get some old milk crates. No, what what you do is you go to a place like uh, this is one called Rent for Event. There, look in your town, and there's probably a rental house that rents these staging components. So they make these uh, metal stages with different size legs that you can piece together to form a stage. To uh, put that at the front of your uh, event, and then they probably will rent you some folding chairs too. And I would suggest, you know, get the person who's going to be speaking, or the speakers, or the dais, whatever the setup is going to be, at least uh, a foot and a half to two feet off the ground. Uh, so that you can get a clear shot of them from cameras that are about midway out in the room and on another platform, the same height, so that you can put your cameras up a little bit over the heads of the people that are sitting in the audience. Uh, So you get a clear shot of everyone head to toe on the stage. And also on that little platform, you put uh, make a wide aisle in the middle and put the seating of the other in-person people uh, on either side of that uh, platform that is the aisle in the middle. And you can put a teleprompter screen, about a 55-inch, about midway back in the room, uh, just below the camera lenses of the cameras that are shooting the talent if they're going to be using scripted contact or content or presenting speeches, et cetera, that do need to be on a teleprompter. Otherwise, if they're doing PowerPoints or something on a projection screen behind them, you can put confidence monitors, a couple of uh, 47s or 55s, uh, on the floor, tilted back in front of the front row of the people seated in the room, so they're not uh, viewable by the cameras out in the audience, and uh, the presenters can then reference those for the PowerPoint presentation or iMag or whatever you're using to present. Alex Lindsay. Yeah, yeah, a lot of what Courtney said there. I won't belabor some of that stuff. What we've done a lot, and again, I'm always going to tell you that <laughs> you do a digital digital first event, but if they're going to ask you for a hybrid event, um, if you have the stage here and you have your your speaker, what we oftentimes do is if we want to incorporate the audience while we'll PTZs on on the wings that are crossing, and a lot of times within the audience we build basically um, we build 
regions. So you have A through F region, and then you program those into the camera so that you just hit the buttons to take it to that region. So when someone stands up to ask a question, you can get to that region and then and then fine tune it um, as, as it goes through there. But otherwise, it's distracting to have people up here. Um, if you think about, if we back up from that stage, usually we have two cameras in the back, um, one that is wide, one that is long. Um, and then we will we'll usually, if there's going to be round tables, we'll have two wings that are coming in. And what you're trying to do is put those wings in a place where you can see the far corner of the far eye. That's what we're trying to always do. So we swing those cameras out as far as we can go so that we don't see profiles. That's what we're trying to avoid. Um, you are going to want long lenses. Um, <clears throat> anything wider than a, than a waist-up shot will, uh, will reduce your audience's view time. <laughs> so, so like, so if you're, if you have an online audience, if you're showing head to toe, you want to cut to that every once in a while. Courtney's absolutely right. You need a head to toe shot, but you want to stay as much as you can in waist up and chest up um, shots because that holds your audience longer um, than, than the, 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 the head to toe shots aren't as devastating as slides, but they're pretty close. So, so you just need to know that they're, they're, you know, so like you just, they're, they're really not, you remember people are watching on a phone or a small screen, that person looks really small, they just stop listening. So the, um, and you know, you can, the, the, you can definitely put the teleprompter. Most of the time, what we try to do is move people away from teleprompters uh, for big events and move them into notes, confidence. And, and Courtney's absolutely right. If you have a stage, you usually, we have three, three confidence monitors that are usually showing all the same thing. It just means that they can point in different directions. Um, we want them to go to notes as much as we can. Um, there's actually absolutely a group of people that really want to have teleprompters up there to say exactly what they want, especially if their legal team has a has input on it. Um, but uh, it doesn't, it's kind of the, you know, for events, it is, um, it's hard for corporate, most corporate folks to do that well. Um, so that's the, you know, so when you have an actor up there, they can nail it. When you have a corporate person up there, <laughs> Sometimes not as much. So, um, so anyway, so it, it just uh, it comes across a little cardboard. Um, and so the uh, so those are some of the things. But the thing, the real thing when you're talking about hybrids is how you're going to interact with folks. And I like to put the screens, the screen that I that the stage is looking at behind the audience on a big screen or projection, so that they're looking up and over them rather than looking down at them or looking off to the side. It looks better for the person on the other side. And then remember, you're going to have to have a big screen, either LED wall that should be more than nine feet high. Uh, at, at its base so that you're not shooting against it. <laughs> and so get it up high and then you bring people in there. Um, thing, the thing to think about is when you have the person, we used to do teleprompters in Teratron when someone's going to do a point to point. So they're in their office and here's their thing and they're looking straight in. What we actually found was that was a little better was to move the camera up but keep the monitor right here and have them look down at that monitor. So it, it seems odd because you're doing that. But what it does is it if you're in a standards room, it'll lower their eye line and it'll make them look like they're on this, it makes them look like the Wizard of Oz. They're on this giant screen and they're looking mm -hmm. down at you. Um, and so that, that, that has a tendency to be a little bit more arresting for the folks that are in the room <laughs> so than, than looking straight into it. So otherwise, they look like they're going straight across you. So that's something to think about. We've covered a lot of really good information. Sky, can you get us back on with us building the small stage for well, our corporate hybrid? Again, where is your, your HVAC coming in? Is that going to be blowing into your, your microphones, your light grid that you're going to want to make sure you're, you know, either spotlighting or flooding to Alex's point of having a video monitor or, or a video wall behind you. We actually made sure that the graphics that were going to be created are over the heads of the audience that are going to be sitting in front and to the downstage monitor, otherwise uh, sometimes referred to as DSMs. Uh, we actually are putting us like a big 70 inch monitors in the back behind the the small in-stage audience. So that way they're looking at their notes and we actually gave them the clicker because we figured they're going to be doing 
that 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 changeover. So we'll report on that and see how that worked. Uh, Chris Fenwick. And I'll just wrap it up with this, Brian. Don't forget the pipe and drape. You can clean up a lot of mess in a room with pipe and drape. You know, pipe and drape in the States rents, uh, last I heard, and this is a while ago, 10 bucks per foot. And I'm convinced that the first time somebody bid pipe and drape to somebody, the client said, well, how much is that going to cost? And they said, well, 10 bucks. And I think they meant 10 bucks per, per foot. stick. And the, and the client said, is that per foot? And the person bidding the price went, uh, yes, <laughs> because it's insanely expensive. And they claim that they dry clean all that stuff every time, but I promise you they don't. Uh, one other suggestion, since he's looking for a small stage, uh, you can see at a lot of street fairs that they do have towable stages. They're little units that look like a truck, uh, a pickup truck or something pulls it on site. They open up like a clamshell and they form an instant stage and it covers most of the things we're talking about here. The actual bed of the stage is usually six to ten feet above the street level. So it gets that elevation for the performers and that plus a camera that has a high position, they're in good shape. Let's go on to the next question. Bo Cordell from Charleston, South Carolina wants to know, is anyone using a home energy monitor like this one from Emporia? I installed one yesterday, and so far I'm very impressed by the ease of use and quality of data it provides. Courtney's going to help us out here. Courtney? Well, I took a look at that one. It, it uh, involves uh, going into your electrical panel and clipping on these little current sensors onto each lead that goes out to your uh, individual plugs throughout the house and then and also onto your incoming legs, your 220 legs, to give you the overall current consumption and, the in, and a breakdown of the individual um, current draw of each uh, leg on your, you know, that's going throughout your house. In my house, it'd be a problem because I'm on one big 30 amp fuse for all the plugs in the kitchen and the living room. So, and I got a, I recently got a, a new UPS sitting under my computer that monitors the voltage. And I was surprised to learn that when I turn on the heater or the microwave, the voltage drops to about 105 volts, which kind of makes some computers go nutty. So uh, a monitor like this could be fairly useful to, to pinpoint problems like that where you have uh, individual circuits that are overloaded and voltages dropping. So uh, Let's move to the next question. Daniel Goldstein from Baltimore, Maryland. Daniel asks, what mic preamps and analog digital interfaces do you include in shipped kits with countryman-style over-the-ear labs? Or should I stick to Shure MV7s for remote records, not remote live? So there's some wiggle room to fix it in post with RX. Guy Cochran's going to start us off here, Guy. Yeah, it's funny that you <laughs> asked this question because I just opened up an email this morning and was taking a look at what some of the guys do it. at the highest level. They're shipping out these crazy kits. So you could rent kits. You don't have to buy them. But if you want the highest end stuff, you're looking at a, a Sure system. Uh, basically, it's an Axiant with Dante. So here's what their system looks like. It's the Sure ULX Q4D. And you can see the whole system here. So she's got... Uh, this little rack mount case that has in it a pep link, a think, uh, what do you call that? The little little nook, uh, but it ships with the lights, the PTZ cameras, and then uh, PoE switch so that they can just uh, go with one. And then there's the uh, the transmitter. There's the Sure ULX four, uh, and then they show how to sync it. Put the lav on. But this company is called LiveX, and then they show the AirPods. 
and they could control that whole thing uh, remotely with the PEP link because they can uh, VPN into that thing. So the user just has to plug in power and ethernet and then set up the lights and the camera and they can take it from there. So I'll put a link to these guys. Uh, they're called LiveX and that's their remote production kit that you can rent or they can Alex. control for you. Excuse me, Alex. Yeah, um, if you're using the headset, I, I have to admit that labs are really dangerous in most spaces because, um, in my opinion, um, because of they are super sensitive to um, live rooms. So if the, if the room has got a lot of hard surfaces, the lab is going to just fall apart. <laughs> like you know, And there's no RX that's going to get rid of all of that. So that's why we send out headsets. So Countryman or an MV7 or something. Now the question is, 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 is your client want to have the mic in the in the in the shot or not the mv the off-axis rejection of the mv7 is very high so if they don't want the mic to be seen then a lot of times we try to move it out um you can theoretically get some better we also send out shotgun mics um occasionally for that but they are also susceptible to a lot of room noise um so those are things to kind of think about as you start to build um what you're thinking about is what are you sending in what room are you sending this into because most conference rooms are horrible you know they're they're designed to look at not to listen to and so if they're putting them in there that's a real problem but that's why we use the headsets and we use the we use the mix pre threes with noise assist because it will um, we can pull some stuff out now we're doing live um but generally the headset is going to the problem with the headsets is mostly sibilance so you will have to you have to filter out the sibilance um in the shots that's the that's the issue that you get into with them um but they are they generally are safer if you don't know what the environment is that you're sending them into that's the biggest problem with labs and why i will only use them as a last resort or when a broadcaster demands them but they just if you close your eyes and listen to most broadcasts on tv they sound really bad next question Chris Fenwick in Emeryville, California, and right there on our panel. Can we discuss what adjustments are being made in the back end in prep for Office Hours 2.5, color correction, audio sync, etc.? Alex Lindsay. Yeah, so we're in the process <laughs> so of, of pulling all this stuff together. So right now what we have is all of the f signals are actually going through a um, AJA uh, FS HDRs. So there's six of them stacked up. So we can have up to 20 people. Um, you know, we can take up to 20 people because they have four 1080p inputs per, per unit. Um, and then we can individually um, shade those. The um, at the bottom of that, we have a sixth one, and that one can do the overall conversion to HDR or SDR. Um, so that's what we have kind of set up right now. Eventually, what we're planning to do is take those, um, all those corrections that we're doing of the panelists and convert them to HDR before they go into the switcher. We're, we still have to do some work with the figuring that out to make that work perfectly. Because that what that means is that once we update that, and push HDR into the switcher, um, the advantage that we have there is that we will now be able to run HDR, native HDR content into the show. That content will look amazing. It's, the speakers will look better. The content that we push in uh, will look amazing. So for instance, if, if we use a live view with 10-bit HDR and we, and we pass that out and into our system, when we cut to that, it will snap. You know, if you have an HDR signal, um, our stuff just has to keep up with it inside of the Zoom uh, piece, which we've done in the past. I've done work where we've done this live in the past. So, so that's that's what we're planning to do with the FSHDRs. Um, the first step is we're figuring out what we need to color correct. I have to admit, I haven't done as much of that recently because what we're working on right now is getting the HDR 5.1 working in YouTube, and so we've got a bunch of people that are working on that right now. Um, and so and. 5.1's not rolled out to the whole <laughs> all of the YouTube community. So so we're working through, you know, and almost nobody's doing it. So we're really on the outer edge of figuring out how to make that work. We're gonna, you know, and we'll go from 
and eventually the goal is is that we will right and right now we're still have an SDR stream and an HDR stream and that'll stay separate for a while our goal working with um with YouTube is to uh, get to a point where we can do one HDR stream they're doing the tone mapping down to SDR they're doing the 51 fold down to stereo so we only have one but the only way for us to get that to work is for us to do this every day <laughs> so and give and provide data and make it work and and push it down the path so you know we're kind of cutting that new ground <laughs> to to kind of push that forward um for everyone and um and so that's kind of what we're working on from that color perspective um, we also right now have we are able to correct sync. We're we're not we're just in the process of kind of building that out right now. And so basically we're able to take zoom ISO with the audio. There's a couple, again, a couple sharp edges with the zoom ISO audio that we're that we're filing off and working with Zoom to file off. And so so that's the, you know, that is the thing that by doing this, what we're doing looks crazy. And it isn't something that probably should be used in production just yet, but it doesn't get to production quality unless we're doing it. You know, like, you know, like, you know, because most people, like I can't use some of the tools that I'm just talking about here. I can't use them in production right now because they're not hardened. You know, they're like, oh, this doesn't quite work or this is a little too hard or this isn't stable or this isn't. And so what, one of the big powers of this show is the fact that we do it, you know, um, every day. And so if we start incorporating these high-end tools into the into the show, we're now, we're not only getting better at it ourselves we're pushing the technology forward with our partners you know we're we're showing them where there's sharp edges that need to be filed off we're showing them what we have to you know make make work and you know the easiest way to predict the future is to create it <laughs> so we're you know literally this show is the sharp end of the stick for most of these technologies right now where you know there's other people that are doing hdr and 51 once a week for 16 weeks or, or once or whatever you know they're not but they're not doing it every single day and so we're kind of chewing that up right now. Um, we're also w talking to a, uh, a provider that may allow us to do Atmos and vision testing. And so, so we're, there's a lot of things that we're kind of working on, but again, no one does this every day. And so um, by doing that, we're kind of pushing that outer envelope. So well, while we're answering questions, we're uh, kind of, we think we're moving the ball forward for the entire industry, so. Mitch Hill. Alex, is it safe to say that you might create profiles for each of this individually? Do you recall each show? That's the goal. I mean, the goal is is that so there's there's a rest you know there's rest controls that we can use for the HD, the FSHDRs. The first step we want to do is figure out what we're changing and get it all working. We're not you know you just want to get it working. The second piece of that is to expose the controls that are necessary for another window. So imagine another window in Universe that's talking to Isadora, that's talking to everything else, and we just we can make you just get a web interface that says chris is a little dark i'm going to brighten brighten you know bring up his gamma do whatever i'm going to do you know like all of those things are, are stuff that we can do and just expose it to a web page the next step is to build luts and the goal is is that the idea is that once we have the order of everybody that's in it we know where they're going into the fshdrs and it automatically puts a lut in for every person so as long as they don't change their stuff from day to day it will, it will, there'll be an autocorrect that makes them, that makes them look great every day that they come in. And if a new, if you, you come in once a week, it just says, oh, Sky's here. And it has a LUT for Sky. And as long as Sky hasn't changed his setup, Sky will look great. And, um, and so that's the, um, that's the, that's where we're trying to get to by the summer. You know, like it's, it's, uh, this is a slow turning process to make this work, but um, it will, you know, we're, we're on the track of hopefully by NAB, that's the that's the real push that we're making, that we will be regularly sending out 4K uh, HDR10 
5.1. Like that's the show, you know? And, uh, and so we're, you know, we're, we're just kind of barreling past it and we've got a lot of great people on the back end working on it. So fascinating. Next question. Next one in from John Preto in Las Vegas, USA, and right here on our panel, Mr. Fenwick. Are we allowed to heckle you on your appearance with Ripple Training Crew today on YouTube at 9 a.m. Pacific? Allowed or required, Chris? Shameless self-promotion. Yes, of course, John. I would expect nothing less from you. No, uh, on YouTube, uh, I don't have the link for it offhand, but uh, at 9 o'clock California time, uh, Pacific time, uh, we're talking about uh, using the Apple ecosystem and Final Cut in particular in small businesses and why I use it. And, uh, you know, Steve Martin and Mark Spencer are always fun to hang out with, a lot of fun. And and I got to say, those guys have done more to support the Apple community than I think maybe anybody. It's it, And it's a pleasure. Uh, they're super smart guys, and uh, I'm looking forward to it, and I would love to have people join amen to all that uh mitch hill has a thought yeah and regarding the uh, the heckling why wait let's go right now <laughs> no we have the rest of this show to finish up you can heckle on the next uh next question andy kokendorfer from Vieira, florida asking where do you go for info on the future of work and office design for collaborative meeting spaces thanks uh next uh, uh alex is going to help us out here I think most of the information is from from my own network uh, here <laughs> is a big piece of it. Watching what everybody's doing in office hours is usually the biggest thing that I that that gives me ideas of how to to kind of rebuild this. Watching what people like Greg Gibson and a lot of and and, and Jeff Keithley and and other people that are doing these events are um, you know is a big impact on me paying attention to like and things that I like and things that I don't like and things that I you know think will work. Um, but I think that this is probably the number one place for me to do that. I might also have connected a lot. Of people on LinkedIn and Twitter that are posting things that I look at. Courtney has a thought. Courtney, uh, I've talked to some people that are in the large corporate world that are uh, going into new buildings that have been recently built, and a lot of them are, are into this uh, large open office seating concept where they just have long benches, no cubicles, no one is assigned an office or a desk. You come in and you plop your laptop down and you plug into the system. There's a monitor and keyboard at each position. And you go to work. Um, everyone uses their cell phone for communications uh, inside the office, and everyone hates it. So uh, I've seen a lot of offices. There was an office uh, up the street, uh, a huge, brand-new, beautiful, three-story tall uh, office building. It was built brand-new called the Harlow uh, on a lot at one of the major studios, and it sat empty. It was all this open, big open space seating with a terrace and uh, – um, you know, all the amenities and all this open office type of, of arrangement, it sat empty for three years. They could not lease it. Somebody finally leased it. Uh, and I just noticed, I walked by it the other day, they're putting in walls and offices and cubicles because, <laughs> and they're ripping out all the open office uh, seating. So I think we're moving back in that direction post-COVID. Uh, and they're finding that there are a lot less people. They need a lot less office space because a lot of people are working from home or doing a four-day week or a two-day week in the office. So they rotate them in and out on different days. So they don't need as much office space. So it saves on air conditioning and power and all that other stuff that you have to incorporate for running a big office. Uh, and by keeping half the people, half the workforce at home half the week, uh, you can save a lot of money. 
Alex? Yeah, if we're talking about trends, I think a lot of the things that we're seeing is number one is they are building many, many more closed cubicles. So these are completely closed offices. They're not very big, but they are there so that you can jump into meetings and they generally have a lot of soft soft walls and everything else so that you look and sound good on an online event. Um, and a lot of them are having, they're getting onto Zoom or Blue Jeans or Teams and they all just look and sound. They're, it's designed so that everyone can look and sound good. In the hybrid environment between those offices, what is constantly coming up is that the folks online feel like they're getting left behind, you know, and they're not, or they're not being a, a part of the conversation. They can't even hear what's going on in, in, a, in a conference room. So conference rooms are getting softer walls. Um, conference rooms are getting better cameras. Um, there's more smaller conference rooms that are designed to handle half the team as opposed to a big conference room that's designed to handle the whole team. Um, we are seeing also in some of the folks that we're working with, not only has it, it, it as those technologies get better people don't even want to walk across campus <laughs> like they're just like why can't i just do this here like why can't i do this out of my office and the and op the open office has been a big problem but as it's dropped the number of people that's when they're filling it in with these kind of closed cubicles they just have a door and you close them and they're not they don't belong to anyone um they just kind of sit in there to have those meetings and um but some people are just spending the whole day in those meetings because it's nice and quiet <laughs> so and they can and they can look and sound good along with the folks that are um remote mm. as well Courtney. I was going to mention that Elon Musk uh, announced yesterday that he's moving Tesla engineering headquarters back to California from Texas. They had moved down there, and I think they'd put them in that same huge uh, mega plant that he built in South Austin. Uh, he's moving into Hewlett Packard's old campus uh, up in Silicon Valley, so it'll be interesting to see uh, how they retrofit those buildings uh, to you know, bring on a leading edge design and engineering company guy yeah there's a magazine called sound and video contractor i'd say to take a look through that magazine there's some great ideas inside of there uh, one of the installs that we did recently of our one button studio was into a uh, wenger room so w-e-n-g-e-r these are typically rooms that uh, uh, we've seen them installed in schools for music practice so if somebody wants to practice a loud instrument they have these tilt up uh, partitions essentially that you can have a window you you could design them how you want but basically they're like a vocal booth but larger and so our last install was in one of those and when our installer went in he he you know clapped his hands to do the the clap test and he was like this is awesome it's just already pre-done pre-treated and so that as i started to use the one button studio more myself over the last couple of weeks i'm like man this this is the future being able to have a high quality camera, great audio, great lighting, great green screen with an ultimate and the ability ability to present. It, it's it's amazing. So I'm excited to see what people come up with in the future based around that model of people being able to do webinars and things where they're staying somewhere locally instead of having to travel across the, the east, to the East Coast, West Coast and bouncing back and forth and getting all that jet lag and all that. So I'm excited to see what, what uh, sound and video contractor and some of these guys come up with for the, the C-suite and also just for for regular employees that want to go into a huddle room. Uh, in fact, at the the local airport here in Seattle, I did see one of these little booths. It, it was much smaller. It reminded me of a telephone booth, but you basically book the time and you swipe your card and you go in there and it had a little little light and a little screen where you could plug in your laptop. But those are already out there, these little tiny booths that are, they're starting to put them at airports. But uh, we work in some of these other places where, is in some of the hotels or where I see some of these uh, higher end pieces going besides just a regular, you know, Logitech rally or some kind of like $5,000 type uh, 
corporate setup that's that's more like a Zoom room. And there's some good examples also on the Zoom site. If you go to the look up just on Google Zoom rooms, there's some really good examples for two-person, four-person, uh, eight-person plus uh, arrangements. And they give some tech specs in there as well. I'm 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 just concerned about the commercial office space people out there because I know I was working with a company they added two floors signed a ten year lease about six months before the pandemic hit and they came down to needing one half of that but they had ten years in front of them of costs that they had to had to eat essentially and they're still nowhere near back to the size they were before the pandemic hit. I I know there's going to be a ton of reconfiguration, but I think the need for actual numbers of seats in these places has just fallen. And I hope uh, whatever the realist, commercial real estate industry morphs into, it better serves the needs of their clients because it's a big, big difficulty out there for folks at that side of the industry. Next question. Coming in from Brooklyn, New York is Mike Edwards asking, morning, guys. What cameras and audio devices do you suggest for recording behind-the-scenes production crew for post-show review, looking to capture habits and decisions during an in-person show that we can sharpen up on in the, for the future? Sky's going to start us out here. Sky? I, last week, in creating expectation and managing that expectation, recognized that we had the on the tennis court, the $100,000 cameras were were making the the job they were doing the the heavy labor but the behind the scenes was an iphone and so i it was a consequently a perfect device and we plugged into the uh the little mic input i had a headset on i could see you putting a, a shotgun mic on just as easily and mounting that up somewhere with a small rig and again if you're recording internally you could now have on a iphone 13 three a uh, wide, extreme wide, normal, and a, or a, a zoom in, if digital zoom, if you wanted to. So you could have that. Again, you're trying to be able for review in in post production. That was a great device, and then your heavy lifting machines are out there making your money for you. So the other camera was a Insta 360, and that gave uh, Jeff Keithley the option of you know doing some modifications with software and, and panning it around. Uh, remotely. So those those were two options. You could go watch that on last week's, uh, last Friday's uh, episode of Office Hours. Alex Lindsay. Yeah, the hard part of the iPhones, we use iPhones a lot for that, but the hard part is that people don't want to give them up or they don't want them sitting there opened on, you know, when they're, when they're not there because it's their iPhone. Um, a lot of times we do behind the scenes videos as well as time lapses with GoPros so that we can just see overall thing. Time lapse helps you see things across time and you can see a lot of things that worked and didn't work that you wouldn't see in real time. And then you also want to look at potentially ENG style cameras. And so Sony makes a lot of these. These are the PXW Z series. And so there's a lot of them. There's the, there's the, uh, the 280s the 190s. Um, and those are smaller, um, they're smaller sensors, which means that more will be in focus. And when you're doing behind the scenes, sometimes that's what you want. You're not trying to do an art piece. Um, and so it makes it a lot easier for you to shoot what you need without going to, the, this is one of the few times that I use smaller sensors is when we're trying to just gather data. And Chris. I wholeheartedly agree. Alex, the uh, a GoPro for something that's a long run uh, I think Mike was specifically saying, you know, interview stuff, and it's just so quick and so easy. Um, I'm a huge proponent for shooting things on the iPhone. I think that there is a time where the vast majority of stuff, I'd just rather have it shot on an iPhone because it's it's going to look great. The uh, computational photography aspects of what it does 
is great. The audio is a bit more difficult, but there are plenty of solutions to that. Um, I, I did a thing at C, uh, not CES, but, um, SEMA with Keenan, where we use the little GoPro, um, cheap wireless system, uh, directly USB out of the receiver into the iPhone, uh, Thunder tube, whatever the, the port is on the bottom of the phone. Um, and as an editor, I mean, the footage was fine. The audio was very manageable. It wasn't like perfect audio, but it was clean enough that I could clean it up and post. And let's face it, you're doing BTS. Hey, how did the job go? What, what worked? What didn't? That's really all you need. Oh, Sky has a last thought. I just yeah, saw him just because yeah. Jeff was sitting next to his big, loud, noisy uh, fan system. I had, a, even with a lav on him, uh, I was using the Road Goes. There was just fan noise, fan noise. Well, the Adobe podcast uh, is in beta, and it's a audio cleaning software or AI. And I took that audio, and I threw it up there, and it just eliminated all that fan noise back behind. So... There's other options. Sky Gleason just finished Sky Cochran. Yeah, one of the cameras that I've been playing with, it's probably the cheapest NDI camera as well as the least expensive um, uh, SRT camera is this little one from Huddlecam. It's the same body, Alex. Is that one that you have, the little USB one? So it's the same lens, same form factor, but it's one cable and that's PoE. So that's your audio, video, and control. And I have it hooked up to a control surface here where I can still zoom in. It doesn't have much zoom. It's it's uh, you know a 4K camera zooming into 720p at the 8x. Or actually, I think it goes down to even to 360p. But th this is a cool little camera because you could deploy a couple of these because they're so inexpensive. But yeah, PoE at one cable. And then uh, you can use either the the remote control that comes with it to, to zoom in and position and frame around or you can use uh, a controller, which I'll put a link in the chat too. Excellent. Next question. Kyle Hammond from wherever Kyle is right now. Did I hear correctly last week that Mimo Live has or will have ISO capabilities from Zoom? Alex? Yeah, um, so uh, probably pretty early, Oliver told us that, that, Zoom, that Zoom ISO will be built directly into Memo Live. So part of your membership that you pay for Memo Live, your monthly or whatever, will just include being able to connect people directly inside of Memo. So they'll be able to be, the, it's the theory, they'll be able to, and he was in After Hours showing a little bit of this, but um, they will be able to um, actually, you'll be, we'll be in a meeting like this, but you'll be able to pull ISOs out into Memo directly. Um, so that looks pretty exciting. Right now you can do that with Siphon. Um, so you can use Zoom ISO and siphon to pull those into Memo Live, which I've done a, a fair bit of. Um, but uh, this will take the Zoom ISO part out of the mix, which is fine with Zoom. <laughs> like they're they're there to that, that's the that's them uh, dog fooding that. And you'll be able to pull. You'll have Memo be able to to join a meeting and pull those those feeds directly out. We don't know exactly when the release is, but he has talked about it a little bit, and it'll be pretty uh, pretty exciting when it comes out. Cool. Let's go to the next question. Next one in from Robin Cutshaw in Atlanta, Georgia, asking, how much noise does an X32 add to an audio chain? I'd like to run mics through the X32 and out to a mix pre-6, but don't want to add a lot of noise. Alex. We found that the preamps in the, in the X32 are pretty quiet, <laughs> so they're, they're not really adding. I mean, one of the problems that we had with uh, Behringer in the past was very loud preamps. So your your concerns are well-placed. Um, but you should find that the, the self-noise is very low. They're, the preamps aren't as good as the as the um, mixed pre's, but they are, they're, they're pretty solid and pretty quiet. Next question. 
Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking Insta360 link resolutions, horizontal 3840 by 2160, 1920 by 1080, 1280 by 720, vertical 1088 by 1920, 736 by 1280. How do I keep the camera from auto-shifting to these last two vertical reses, which it often does? Alex. So I've never had it do that, and I have four of them, and I use them all the time. So I don't know exactly what's causing that. I'm going to guess that you're tilted too much. So what's happening is, is that your your Insta360 is just being tilted. You're not, it's not flat. And there's some, because it does, it, it has this adjustment internally where it figures out which way is up. And so when it turns on, it spins, you'll see it spin around and it'll kind of look and they'll go, okay, this is up and it'll actually level itself properly. But I think that if you turn it too much, it may level itself the other direction. That's my guess. Uh, next question. Oh, sorry. That's Bill. That's Bill's Next job. question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for both of you guys, Samuel Nordvik from Norway asks, Guy, have you been able to output 3840 by 1080 from a Mac to the LG 42.5 quad display in one signal out input? Uh, Windows can do this. Guy Cochran's going to help us out, Guy. I haven't tried it. The way that I have mine set up is that I use two physical wires, and that way I can just slide the mouse right over. So I haven't had a need to because it's so seamless to just move them both over, and I don't mind having an extra cable. But I could see, I guess, if you were running out of outputs and you needed to do that, uh, I don't know if it would work or not. But, uh, yeah, I'm using a blend of Mac and PCs, but I, I use two cables instead. So uh, I'll have to give it a try and see if it works. Hope that helps you. Next question. Lou Perez in Phoenix, Arizona, asking... How often do you calibrate your monitors? My software is reminding me to calibrate every 30 days. Seems aggressive. Alex. The, the software doesn't, I mean, it's, it's uh, if you're using something like a spider, it doesn't take very long to do it. So every 30 days would be fine. Depends on how much the color matters. So if the color really matters and you're doing colorist work, um, then I think that you probably ought to do it every 30 days. In fact, I'd probably do it every project. Um, so, you know, you just to make sure that you're right on so that you don't have to argue with someone. But uh 30 days is more than even when I was at ILM, they switched out our monitors every 90 days. <laughs> so they would, they bring a new monitor and set it down and pull it out and, and take take the other one away and to make sure that we stayed on. So that was a long time ago, but still. <laughs> In all the grading seminars I've ever gone to, colorists always telling me, you got about a half an hour <laughs> before your eyes start changing. So I think they're they're very aggressive about calibrating their monitors as often as they feel it's required. And sometimes that's, as Alex said, every project, sometimes every morning when they come in to make sure that they're seeing exactly what they're expecting to be seeing. Courtney, you had a thought? Uh, yeah, this is you, you'll usually see this on OLED monitors because the pixels don't uh, the phosphors don't age uh, at the same rate. So blue will will fade faster than green or red. So they you have to constantly keep shifting your color balance and color calibration uh, as they age. Uh, you don't see it as much if you have an LCD or one of these new uh, QLED monitors uh, with a uh, uh, ultraviolet. LED backlight. You don't see that as much because there's not as much color drift as they age. So we've got about uh, about a minute left for one more question before we switch over. Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana. What's the latency difference between the A10 Mini Pro ISO, HDMI, and SDI versions? How hard would it be to add a Mini Pro SDI to an HDMI Extreme workflow? Alex, can you do it quick? Yeah, if you're um, if you uh, uh, I'm sorry, that knocked me off a little bit. Um, if you uh, 
if you put it through a converter, you're going to lose about a half a frame. You know, so so you're gonna you're gonna see some some there. The HDMI to and SDI versions themselves should be almost the same unless you've genlocked all the cameras. If you genlocked all the cameras with SD, an SDI camera with an SDI camera flow and with everything there, you may find that, that latency is a little bit lower because it doesn't have to do that frame correction, and that's something the HDMI can't do. Um, so so that would be the only time you would see that um, that change, and it would be by about a half a frame or a frame. Excellent. As we wrap up the first hour, just remember that if you're interested in being a panelist at some point and you think you're ready, you can join the panel. Go to uh, the regular Office Hours website. There will be a set of instructions there you can follow and learn how to volunteer to be part of The Daily Show. We would welcome you in. It's a great experience to be part, about, part of the panel here. Uh, not only will you help other people learn, but you'll be doing a lot of learning yourself. So these are things that are a very exciting part of being part of the Office Hours family and we're looking forward uh, to you being more participative as you spend more time here at Office Hours, uh, which is pretty much getting us to the top of the hour here. And welcome to Office Hours, our second hour. Today, we're going to be talking about the Sony FR7. This is a camera that's created a stir in the industry. One of the first uh, pan-tilt-zoom cameras that has a lot of the capabilities of a regular high-end cinema camera, and it's created a stir. And I know that Alex has had one for a while, and I see our friend uh, Greg Gibson here, who's going to be talking about it as well. Between the two of them, they have a lot of things. Greg, first of all, how are you? It's great to have you here on the panel. Great, Bill. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to diving into this uh, exciting technology. I've had a chance to use it out in the field a few times now and getting a lot more comfortable with it and, and happy to share uh, some of what I've learned with everyone. We're very excited to have you here. This has been a, an extraordinarily uh, anticipated camera. Uh, I know that it combines a lot of functions that a lot of people want in a new remotely controllable camera. Alex, uh, give us a little bit of a preview from your side about what you've experienced with it, and then I'll go directly to Greg. Yeah, I've had the opportunity to test this. I'm actually sending it back because it's it's a, it's a loner, but I may I may buy one. We'll see. <laughs> so I got to figure out. I got to scrape together things, go through my garage and see what I can sell, like a kidney. Um, anyway, so the um, but uh, it is uh, it's the best camera I've ever used for what I'm using it for. So I've been mostly testing it in place here. Uh, we are actually my based on my experience. I'm we're using Noah's cameras at an event on Monday um, at a red carpet, and so we are starting to add it into the pipeline. I'll probably use it for a lot of the productions that I do. Um, you know, I've used a lot of PTZs in the past. Um, the this is by far the best PTZ that I best PTZ experience I've had, except for really long lenses. So if I'm using um, bigger lenses and I've had to have, you know, these larger telemetrics with black magic cameras and stuff like that. But as an all-in-one, um, and I've owned many <laughs> of them, um, this is by far the best one. And, and at about the same price point that I've had in the past. Now, we've talked about the FR7 before. And what I wanted to do is come back because I do think, I will say, I mean, we, we see announcements from Black Magic today, so we'll see what happens. But this, in 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 my world at least, this is the, probably the most important camera that's been released in quite some time. Um, I think it changes the way we cover events. I think it changes the way we do a lot of different bits and pieces. And I think that we're going to see, you're going to see more and more um, folks using this camera for what I'm using it for. So if you're an executive, that number of $10,000 or $12,000 is not that big of a deal compared to, you know, if, if you're really trying to do this in meetings all the time. And I get a comment probably once a day you know, from about the camera, you know, about how it looks. And so, and I have to say that part of the, part of what I found so far, I've, I've had it for a couple of weeks to do the testing 
is that um, it is the, the fact that you can change it. So it seems like, oh, you don't need a PTZ at home. But the thing is, is that earlier today, I was a little closer. And I said, oh, you know, trying to match my head and Guy was up. I was like, I'd like to match my head with Guy. And I just picked up my, my you know, picked up my iPad. And, um, you know, I just look down, you know, I, I take a look at, you'll see me look down every once in a while. And I, and, um, and I, when I do that, I'm just sitting here. And this is, this is my view in my iPad. And I simply just, if I want to, you know, go up or down, I'm just simply grabbing onto this and moving, moving the camera up and down. And I can make those fine adjustments. And and you do the adjustments because you can. <laughs> you know, like you know, you you know, that's the big thing is that a lot of times we stick with uh, camera positions and camera setups that don't work or aren't perfect because it's oh, it, uh, have to figure it out. And if you're by yourself, this is for people who do what, what what I do. If you're by yourself, how do you reframe yourself when there's only yourself? <laughs> so so you know, you have to go there and move the camera, and then come back and sit down, and then go there and move the camera, and then come back and sit down. So PTZs make a big difference in um in in what that looks like. And and yes, guy was showing being able you can you can move things around in a DVE. But it's not the same. <laughs> so so anyway, um, so anyway, the uh, and you can do a lot of those things. But I can again, if I want to reframe something completely, and I and I will say that the the full frame sensor is is quite nice. You know, being able to have that depth of field, um, you know, is it really really makes a huge difference. And so I've been really I've been really happy with it. Um, the uh, uh, I again I I didn't know what I would think when we first brought it out I was pretty excited about it when I heard it being announced I was more excited when Greg and Noah and you know came in you know came on and showed it and and so I think that you know but after using it I would say that if I could afford it for my home studio I would get it we are going to use it in most of our events for you know round tables and all that stuff um I think that it's it's pretty revolutionary as far as what we're getting for the price that we're getting it at. Um, the the quirks of it, not a lot of shading inside the 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 um, the iPad. We hope to see you know better better um, more more controls over it. The uh, you can load LUTs, but you can't like do all the color that you'd want to do theoretically with with the iPad setting. You can do it with the hardware or do some of it with the <laughs> hardware. You can get into the menus and really go R minus G G minus R, but there's not what we're used to with as a Black Magic user for that that piece. Um, I think that it is, um, I had a lot of hard, I had a hard time trying, I was trying to power it with PoE. It's pretty quirky. <laughs> like it really wants a lot of power. I, I got a 90 watt, you know, PoE plus uh, plus injector that it didn't even see. <laughs> like it just was like, I don't know what that is. Um, and so it, you have to really look at what you're going to do if you're doing, I know Greg's been successful at that and he'll talk about that in a second. Um, but the, um, so, but, but overall I would say the other thing is, is that the lenses, the, the number of powered lenses for powered zoom, it's pretty limited right now. We hope to see more of those. Um, but so if you're wanting to zoom in and out, um, that's, that's a little bit more problematic um, because there's just not that many of them. They're only like F4 lenses. Um, but, Overall, um, I will say that unless Blackmagic releases something with autofocus, I have I've been doing Blackmagic for two years. If Blackmagic doesn't release something today with autofocus, I'm buying a Sony camera <laughs> for my house, for my home. Like I, I, regardless of whether I can shade it or not, after the experience of having autofocus and not having to go like you'll see me in the in the past go like this before I talk. If you're on the panel. And that's me finding my focus. I'm looking at myself full screen I'm on my black magic and finding my focus. And I stopped thinking about that with the Sony. I just kind of, I'm doing whatever I want. If I want to lean in, I want to lean over. I just know that it's going to follow along with me. And Mitch has been talking about this for a long time. And I've been poo-pooing Mitch for, for as long a time as he's been talking about it. And I was wrong. <laughs> so so anyway so it, it's uh, <laughs> the look on so, Mitch's uh, face yeah. just then was classic <laughs> I was wrong um, so so we're hoping that Black Magic releases something today that has autofocus but if they don't I'm 
I'm still going to use a lot of the Blackmagic. We have tons of Blackmagic cameras. We love Blackmagic and we love their cameras, but I'm not going to use them at home. <laughs> like so, so I mean, for my home thing, I'm going to get an F. I, I will probably get something smaller than this um, to start with, but if I can figure out a way to f- fund it, it's uh, it's an incredible camera. Um, and so anyway, I'm going to kick it off. Uh, that's my, my uh, until we get to questions, that's my little two cents of, of my testing has been, I guess what I would say is uh, very successful. And the other thing I'll say is that out of the box, the color is pretty good. It's pretty accurate. You know, like it, I haven't done anything to it, really. I just turned it on and just was like, well, this is what you look like. And I, I think I look pretty close to what it looks like. You do. It, you look great. Like. So, Greg? And, and so oh, the, I'm sorry. The, you have a little more? Yeah. But anyway, that's it. I'll throw it over to Greg. Oh, okay. Greg, tell us what your experience has been like. Well, um, I mean, so I, I had I was pretty excited about this camera from the time it was announced. Um, if you guys that know a little bit about me know that I came from the still photography world. Uh, I was a big Sony user um, as a still photographer and when I made the pivot into virtual event production and then um, moved f- into the live uh, video production piece of it, as my virtual event client started to transition into in-person events, I really just had to use the gear that I had. And so the gear I had that I had was alpha cameras. And, um, you know, I went out in the field a lot of times. I was doing three, four, five camera shoots. I'm kind of a solo producer type. So I do a lot of stuff by myself. Um, and so I would just set up three or four cameras around the room and, you know, it was always a little frustrating because some of those side cameras, you know, every now and then, I mean, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I just wanted to like reach over to one of the side cameras and be able to tweak the composition or zoom in a little bit or change the focus, um, point a bit. And so it was frustrating. And so I started looking into PTZ cameras and, um, I looked, actually looked at the Sony line of PTZ cameras and the, at the time, um, their line, the line that Sony had was a little bit sort of aged, it was a little bit long in the tooth. Um, I think the BRC X1000 or BRXC1000, whatever the number is, but they're top of the line camera. It's a good quality, nice, good quality camera. It doesn't have any of the alpha technology. So coming from the alpha world, it was a little bit frustrating not to be able to utilize that in, in a PTZ scenario. So I ended up actually buying um, some Canon PTZs initially. And full disclosure here, and I'm doing this for a reason, Right now, and I did this uh, in the last program about the FR7, and I'm and I don't want to repeat a lot of stuff that we talked about in the last program, but I really do think that like just seeing the difference is pretty dramatic. And so, for anybody who hasn't seen the difference, um, I think it's really <laughs> valuable for you. So, like right now, you're seeing me on a Canon CRN 500, and this is a really nice PTZ camera. It's a one-inch sensor camera. It's probably like right up there, maybe just a tiny notch below the Panasonic UE 150, 160 line. Um, Canon just came out with a new CRN 700, which is supposed to be a little more elevated and it's the same price point as the Panasonic's. But, you know, you can see this is a one-inch sensor camera, right? And again, this is the top of the line, cream of the crop of what you have in the current PTZ uh, lineup. It's a one-inch sensor picture quality is good. And you look at in behind me, you do see a little bit of, a, I hate this word bokeh, but you do sort of see quote unquote, what people call bokeh. And it's that little bit of out of focus background, right? But now um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to switch over to an FR7 and you're going to see a dramatic difference. So here we go. I'm going to make the change right now. So now you're seeing me on an FR7 it's a full frame sensor camera and you're seeing me on a Sony uh, 50 millimeter F 1.2 lens. And so, you know, as Alex was saying, the, uh, the, the power zoom lenses in the Sony lineup that 
work with this camera are fairly limited. There's a 28 to 135 and there's a 16 to 35 F4. Those are the only power zoom lenses that you have. Um, but Sony does have a feature built into the cameras that's called clear image zoom. And clear image zoom is basically a, it's like a digital zoom, but it's a lossless digital zoom. At least that's what Sony claims. And to be honest with you, I can't tell any difference when I use it. So what I'm going to do is I have the controller here on my desk and I'm actually going to zoom this. And so again, this is a prime lens. This is a 50 millimeter F 1.2 lens. And so I can zoom this thing in and out. And with um, clear image zoom, I can get two X on it. I can also go over here to my web controller and I can pop this camera now into super 35. So now I'm in super 35 mode. I'm still at F 1.2 on the lens. And now like we can really get some like crazy. I'm sorry. I, I apologize for making you guys look at me this close, but <laughs> it's um, amazing that your eyes are still perfectly in focus, but your ears are out. Right. And I want to show you, I'm just going to, um, and the key is you may, someone may look at that and go, well, that's too short. But the point is we can get there. Like the, the depth right. of field is, the, you know, right. some people might say, right. well, that's, 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 that looks now like a digital zoom because it's so blurry. Um, but, but it is, the point is, is that you have control over that aperture and you can, you know, um, decide how much of that background you want to, you want to show. Right. And what I just did is I just turned the, um, the display on on my SDI output here. So I'm connected to the camera via SDI. So now I'm able to turn the display overlay on. So you can actually see the focus point. And I, and I think somebody was asking earlier about how the focus tracking works with a really tight shot and super depth of field. But, you know, I can move around here and you can see that that focus point is still tracking me really well. And I'm just gonna pop out a super 35 here and go a little bit wider, right? And so, I mean, this camera is staying incredibly sharp, like forward and backward. Look at the tracking on that. And this is razor thin depth of field. We're talking about F 1.2 here. And, and that so forward the camera, and back is very impressive. That was, we always had people leaning out of focus or relaxing out of focus in the past. Absolutely. And even if I turn my head, right, when I turn my head to the side, the focus point still stays on my eye. So the, the focus uh, capability of this camera is pretty amazing. And I just want to, um, real quick, I'm going to show you guys just a few. So I, I, so I'm just sort of getting used to, you know, the first few times I used the camera, I was just kind of feeling it out. I was getting used to it, kind of trying to figure out what the capabilities were. Um, I talked to Alex actually a little bit and showed him some of the stuff I'd been doing. And Alex gave me a little bit of feedback on what I was doing. And so, um, the last time I went out, I really tried to push it a little bit more. So the last event that I um, that I broadcast, I used a 135-18 lens as a side cuts camera. Uh, I used an 85 millimeter f 1.4 on my head-on camera, and you know it's a little, it's a little risky, but I was really I, I felt like I had enough uh, experience with camera out in the field that I was confident in doing it. And I'm just going to show you guys. I have some still. I can show you guys some of the video as well. But I'm going to show you some still. These are frame grabs out of Premiere. And so this is the side uh, 135 millimeter and, 1.8 and the, lens. This is at F1.8. And the thing I'll remind you when you're looking at this is that this is the kind of image that we would see if someone was taking behind the scenes photos of, of that event. It's not the kind of look that you typically see out of a video camera. So while this is still, this is just a still from a video. So it has that incredible uh, soft depth of field, um, but it's, it, and, it, and it makes, the reason that I'm so excited about this camera is that it it makes the event feel more important. 
Like that's the thing that when you shorten that, when you when you shorten that depth of field, when you get that nice soft bokeh, it changes how the event feels um, to the audience and that it feels more important. And as more people, the reason I wanted to talk about this more is that as more people use this camera, it puts everybody else at a huge disadvantage. People won't, and, and here's the deal, the average viewer looking at it will not know why they think that your your production is better. They'll just know, well, when the other people do it, it looks cheap. And when these guys do it, it looks like, you know, it looks important and it looks, you know, it looks big. And so this, this short depth of field that this is bringing to the to play that we just couldn't do before um, is is pretty exciting. Now, one question I have for, for um, Greg is in this shot, you've got two sets of eyes. How hard is it to keep the FR7 focused on the right one? So the camera does a really good job of picking up movement, right? And so when one person starts moving, typically the camera will swap the focus. And so, but also um, I keep the web controller up. So I'll, I'll have a screen in front of me. So I use four cameras. Typically I have four of them and I'll put a, um, I put a quad browser display up in front of me. So I have four web browsers up that are in a quad type display on my screen. And then I can click focus as well. And so I will, I will um, use the click focus quite a bit just to make sure that I do have proper focus. You know, it's fascinating to me because that's such an interesting combination shot. The gentleman in on stage uh, right, our left, uh, it, his front hand is in focus. His back hand is tack sharp and the gentleman behind him is soft. That's telling me that it's doing a brilliant job of keeping that gentleman uh, on stage left, our right just locked on and you're getting that beautiful combination shot where the focus is on the person speaking. Greg, does it? Yeah. And I had somebody say that, you know, um, the shell at the field, like the out of focus hand in the foreground is, is somewhat distracting, but you're looking at a still image. And when you see this moving and I will show you guys some of the moving video in a, in a, in a bit, when you see the moving video, it's not noticeable at all. Right. You don't even notice that the hand is out of focus, but you do notice like how the subject pops in the foreground and to Alex's point, um, when people look at the images out of this camera and they don't really know why it's better, but they just know it's better. I will tell you, after this event was over, the client came up to me and went, wow, Greg, the YouTube feed looked really sharp today. Do you have new cameras or something? And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> yes, I do have new okay. cameras and thanks for noticing. So, yeah. but um, I'm just going to flip through a couple of these. I got a couple more here. This is kind of the same thing. Um, a little tighter and I'm using clear image zoom again on the 135.18. And again, with clear image zoom, when you're, when you're at 1080, you get, um, two X. So you get two X range on the lens. This is another, this woman was a little closer to the camera. So she was the end person, uh, in the panel. And even when, um, and then here's, this is a, just a little wider shot. And I think it shows kind of how the fall off of the shallow depth really, like really and, looks. And, and how many, uh, how many people are in your crew covering this event? That's streaming this event. Well, <laughs> technically one. Yeah. Well, technically, no, technically, technically two, because I do have an audio person. Right. So, you have an audio uh, right? person so have, and so you're shooting this kind of filmic look without a big crew. That's you know, right. So I'm controlling the cameras. I'm live streaming. I'm putting graphics on the video. Right. Uh, I'm cutting, you know, and you know, the kind of, uh, you know, we can talk about the controller a little bit um, later if you want, Alex, but yeah. 
kind of the funny thing about when, when you're cutting a show and you're controlling the cameras, it's kind of like playing the piano or like, or some people might say like rubbing your belly and scratching your head at the same time. It's kind of like you're doing two, two things that are opposing and you just have to make sure that you are not moving the camera, the live camera while you're setting up your next shot on the camera controller. So that's the, when you're by yourself, that's yeah. the one main thing that you really have to pay attention to. This nice. is another shot from there. This is, um, so I, I mentioned earlier, I used the 8518, I'm sorry, 8514 as my primary head on camera. And these guys were so close to the background, you really don't see like a, it's not as dramatic a look as you might ordinarily see with like an 8518. Great, but I did how far was show, your camera from that, from that subject? I would say probably 20 feet, Bill. I, really? I, 20 I've, feet? Is, yeah. yeah, I've had some pretty good success um, lately with clients um, in moving the cameras forward and making the cameras more present in the room and, and kind of following along Alex's philosophy of the digital first events um, in that a lot of times our virtual audience is going to be much larger than our in-room audience. And so when we're trying to make the production about where the larger audience is going to be. Right. And so um, for this event, there was a very small uh, in-house audience, maybe like 20 people. And then there was like 150 people, I think online. And so we moved the cameras forward. We made the, the broadcast, the primary, um, you know, that was the primary focus. And so we, move the cameras up. They're a little closer than like maybe you would typically use them, but I'm really trying to push this idea um, much more with clients and I'm getting really good, um, a really good response from it. And is and, the FR7 and, full frame, is it, that's not a crop factor. That's the actual organic 85 millimeter from 20. Well, there might, I, I, I'd be honest with you, Bill, I don't remember. I may have used Super 35 on this. Oh, Super okay. 35 is going to give me 50% more because that's a 50% crop. And then on top of that, I can use the clear image zoom and get another 2x, right? Oh, wow. So, okay. Right. So it's 50% more in Super 35. And then if you use clear image zoom, then you get another 2x reach at 1080. Um, this image, you know, is 8514, but I just kind of wanted to show this and a, and a couple others where people are talking with their hands in front of their face, right? And the camera is not losing focus whatsoever. Like those images stayed really sharp. That's super, really nice. We have a ton of, ton of questions piling up. Uh, Greg, is there anything else you wanted to specifically well, mention I, I that think, you've I run into? Surprise you, Alex. And, I think we can jump to the questions and then just come back. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Let's go to the first question, Mitch. Uh, first one from Dave Chalmers in Glasgow, Scotland. What's the verdict on using the FR7 autofocus for event production, especially in super tight shots? I think we've just seen some of that, Greg. Has it met your <laughs> expectations and exceeded them by a chunk? Absolutely. It's absolutely exceeded my expectations. So, yeah. I, and I think I've been showing you the uh, the eye tracking on the controller. I don't think there's any better way to demonstrate that. And, and that forward-backward movement at F1.2 was pretty insane. Yeah, that was that impressed the heck out of me. Next question. Next one in from Bill Hobbs in San Jose, California. Have you tried to color match a Canon CR-N500 with the FR7 for a live stream? Um, okay, well, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, and I'm, and I'm, let me be honest with you guys. I didn't spend a lot of time uh, shading the Canon camera that I have here. Um, but again, you know, like if we just kind of cut back and forth, this is the Canon camera. This is the Sony camera. And in fairness, I do have, um, so the camera that you're seeing me on now here, and sorry, it's got my little InstaLink uh, in the foreground because I 
I may end up using it for something else as part of this. But um, so this now is a FR7 with the 28 to 135 millimeter lens on it. And so I was trying to show you something, a fairly comparable, um, a, compar a, fair, a fair comparison between what the Canon camera does and, and what the um, FR7 does. So this is, um, again, the 28 to 135, I think roughly at the same focal length. It's at, it's at f4.5. The Canon camera is at f4.5. And just to kind of um, like can, can kind of go back and forth on these. And then I actually think that I have a, um, let's see, there's a full frame. Let me kind of get this, zoom this in a little bit. So the Sony's a little cooler. So it's roughly about the same. Yeah, the Sony's on the left, Canon's on the right. So this is Sony, this is Canon. And then here's a little tighter. Yeah, colorists would it. probably have little improvements they could make, but for a general I mean, audience, well, I don't for, think there's going to be for live. For live, we would want to clean that up. That's a. I mean, the, the, the one's cooler than the other one, for from my perspective. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, so. and and again, I didn't spend a lot of time trying to um, color shade either either one of these cameras. Yeah, and as Alex mentioned, the Sony is a little bit limited on the color shading. Um, I have been told uh, that sometime in the future that there will be a broadcast level uh, shading capability that'll be built into the camera because this camera is really, it's, you know, Sony's looking at two markets for this camera. They're looking at the cinema market and they're looking at broadcast market. And they've already been using these cameras quite a bit in uh, Monday Night Football. The NFL has used them a lot. Uh, they used them a lot in the playoffs. And, um, and so they know that that's a limitation. And so they're going to add that, that broadcast grade um, color shading. And and the way Alex, that I have a question for more detail. Sorry, you had a question. Yeah, no, I don't have a question. I'm, I'm just going to state that that I the the thing is is that the LUT is the way to handle this as well. So the best way to go between camera to camera are with LUTs, you know, because you can you can correct those and load those in, and it takes a little bit of work. But trying to shade two camera sensors together. Um, you either need a DeMont chart and a really good person to pull them together, um, or you need, or you do it with LUTs and d resolve. But that's, it's tricky. And it's why I tend to avoid multi-sensor events whenever I can, at least having the people who are talking be all the same. Um, you can have wide shots, you can have reverse shots, you can do a lot of other sensors. But when there are people or two people, when I'm cutting back and forth between two two things that are showing a person's face, I try to keep those in the same sensor. But otherwise, LUTs can, can make that happen, but it, it, it's a fair bit of work to get that to work well. Okay. And again, in fairness to the Canon, the Canon does have it does it does have more uh, color shading control, so there, it does have sort of that broadcast level uh, ability to adjust the, the color balance of the camera. Excellent. Next question. Next question coming in from Dave Chalmers in Glasgow, Scotland. Scotland, excuse me. In what scenarios would you consider using the FR7 with remote operator to replace a normal camera with local operator? And Alex, you were popped into yeah, this. Yeah. So, so the um, yeah. So um, the w what I would say is there's two questions there. When do you replace the operator, and when do you replace the um, uh, when do you replace the operator, and when do you make it remote? Are two different things because I find that with PTZs, with this, I would replace a lot of operators with it. Typically, where you need to have an, a, people walking on, people doing walking back and forth on a stage, I still would prefer to use a, a, an operator for. 
But for everything else, especially people see, seated, um, the PTZs work better than, and this is not just the Sony, but all PTZs work better than operators because they can, you can pre-program the person's position and get to it way faster than a human can. And so, um, but the problem you get into when you go remote is latency. You know, like you're trying to, you're, try, you're, you're kind of in this weird fishtailing thing where you're trying to move the camera, the camera's already there, you're, you're overshooting, undershooting. So we don't find that remote operation, unless you're just doing minor changes to a lock-off, um, work super well remotely, um, you know, from us. But but it does, it is a good useful thing to replace, to replace local operators. Greg, did you have an opinion before we go to the other two questioners? Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say that, look, um, the PTZs do pretty well, um, you know, and the Canon cameras just, um, they just launched an auto tracking feature. So their new CRN 700 camera will do auto tracking I, I would be shocked uh, if auto tracking is not added to this Sony camera. I, I really do think there are a lot of um, great features that are going to be added to this to this camera over time. NAB is right around the corner. I I have high hopes for some kind of firmware update that's going to happen at, at NAB. Um, but look, you know, it's not going to replace. It's not going to do the same job as a person. You know, and and like where I have found difficulties with it is having to make that quick change like like in an event when we go to audience questions when when we go to the audience q a being able to find that person in the audience that's asking the question and get the camera on them faster a person standing behind a camera is going to see that and make that move much faster than a ptz operator is going to make that so that, that like that's the one place um i've had some frustration with it but otherwise you know as far as what i do and a lot of especially with all the solo production that i do um, and wearing as many hats as I do on location, it works great for me. And I, I am super happy to have these cameras. Um, you know, I was saying like, like when Sony announced this, I thought this camera was going to be everything that I wanted in a camera. It was going to ba be basically an alpha camera on a robotic head. And that's, that is what I got. You know, this camera, it's an, it's technically an FX six. So the back end of the camera is, is an FX six video camera on a robotic head. And that's basically what we've got with the alpha technology. So I'm all in, man. I love these things, and I, I think that they are just revolutionary and game-changing. Some other panelists want to get down on this. Mitchell? Yeah, I'm glad to find out I'm not the only Sony fanboy here, so glad to see people are coming around. Um, in that kind of a setup, I would say that it would be interesting to use two FR7s and maybe an FX6 as a long camera for long lens and have that one manned so that person can get the master shot when you need it and everything else is being done remotely with the uh, the two pan tilt zoom cameras. And the other thing is they'd be perfectly matched with each other. I'm seeing a lot of nodding. Yeah, we're, 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 that's the, the approach that we're looking at for some of our roundtable events is four FR7s and one FX6. And the FX6 is primarily for walk-on. So people are walking on and I need to follow them from offstage onstage. We need one operator to do that and then have four FR7s to do the rest, to, to do all the other coverage. Greg, did you have another comment? Yeah, I just want to say too, and as far as remote use goes, I've actually done some testing with Jonas and really all you need is a VPN or a Cloudflare tunnel and you can have somebody that's offsite come in and remotely control these cameras. Um, it's it's pretty frightening, it's scary, um, but it works really well. One thing too, um, Alex was talking about the latency. We found that the latency in the FR7 was pretty doggone low in the web controller, even with the Jonas being in Germany. Uh, and that worked really well. I do see more web controller latency in the Canon. And it may have 
have more to do with like how the two cameras feed the web controller. So the Sony um, image that comes into the web controller is basically the HDMI out. So they basically just are just routing the HDMI out feed into the web controller. And one downside of that is, is it's really hard. Like you have to turn, you have to turn all the overlay off in the web controller to be able, if you want to stream using HDMI, because otherwise you can't get a clean feed. So if you want to have the, um, all the graphic overlay and be able to see where the focus point is, in the web controller and stream using HDMI out, you have to turn the display off so you can't see that display. Um, SDI, you can turn the you can turn the overlay on or off, and, and SDI is a pure clean feed, and that's what I'm using right now. Um, but the Canon camera uh, uses, I believe, NDIHX, and that's what they're feeding the um, web controller with, and it does have a little bit more latency that I noticed than the Sony does. Sky, you had a question. Well, actually, it's it's comment to Dave's question with regards to what is normal. And again, I'm going to say, where is your movement happening? And to your question of how many cameras do you need that have a physical human following that movement versus the PTZ to fall, you know, to get the wider shots? That's where the tennis tournament last week. Jeff has eight uh, cameras on the the set on the I call it a set on on the court and four of them are human operated manually uh, moving around and then four of them are being PTZ operated for the wider shots while the, they were being manually operated uh, from the PTZ in the truck previously it had been done from Texas so there's there's a use case for both Courtney um, I assume it has um presets you can set the PTZ to, is it possible to get it to talk to something like a Dugan Auto Mix to do video follows audio so that when the Dugan opens up a mic, it will go to the preset for that person, and when somebody else talks, it'll go to the preset for that person after a specific delay, let's say? It doesn't have anything built into that'll do that, but you. But we've done this in the past with PTZs using the Visca control as well as the um, and using our Arduino. <laughs> so, so it, it's not that it can't be done, but it it's not something that's built in. But you could absolutely with any PTZ camera with Vis Visca, you can pre-program those and save those settings and so on and so forth and move, move that forward. It's just a little bit more of a work process than you see with uh, something like the Mixavec Pro. And you could have it automatically go to a wider shot or a two shot while it's reframing and then come to once. It can go to a wider shot. A lot of times what, what yeah. we do with those, what we've done the, in the past is have it, when someone else starts cutting, it, it cuts to a wide shot. It, so this is a, how you integrate the switcher to it. You, the, the switcher will cut to a wide shot. Another PTZ will slap into the, into the person that's talking, then it'll cut to a one-off. And it can do that automatically, you know, where right. it's looking for a transition. And, and find, and, but it's a mixture of the camera and the, the, the thing. And we've built these, and they're very tweaky. So they barely, you know, we haven't gotten them to work great because there's nothing that supports them. We build it all from scratch. But it does, it does work. When, when it works, you just don't touch it. <laughs> that's the problem. Well, does the API expose the those controls so that you can have Visco. access to them. It's Visco. all physical. Yeah. Okay, for communication. I saw Greg nodding a lot during that. Let's go to the next question. Next one in coming from Jesse Mills in San Francisco Bay Area. Has anyone had actual hands-on experience with the Bird Dog PT, excuse me, P240 uh, PTZ camera? Um, how would the image quality and zoom range compare to the Sony FR7? It uses the Sony XMOR-R sensor. Alex? I haven't used it, but you will see a, you'll have a much longer zoom range. So if you're putting it in the back of a room, you're going to see you're going to get a lot more throw. The image quality is not going to be the same, like not 
close. It's a half inch sensor. Like so. And, and where so, you're, it's, so is that a half? That is a half inch sensor, Alex. One one over what two point five. Uh, right. Yes, yeah, so it's basically a half inch sensor. Right. So you're going to get a lot more inherent depth of field. So you're not going to see any of this like blur background. Um, pretty much everything's going to be in focus. And sometimes that's an advantage. You know, like one one thing that you have to be really cognizant of when you switch this camera is making sure that, you know, what you want in focus is actually in focus when you make the cut. Um, the other thing too is uh, just in terms of image quality, the smaller sensor and lower light, you're going to see a lot more noise. And so like one of the big advantages of the full frame sensor is that you've got actually got big old pic, bigger pixels on the sensor. This is the same internals as a Sony A7S three. Again, I said it was a it's an FX three or sorry FX six internals, which uses the same sensor as the A7S three. And everybody knows that the A7S three is probably one of the best low light cameras that's ever been made. Um, so this camera is going to get have tremendous low light capability. The Bird Dog probably not so much again because of a function of the smaller sensor size uh, and and the um, and and the smaller pixels on the sensor as well. Yeah, Greg, in those images you were showing, was that room light or did you bring in additional lighting to get those? There's some, there some stage lighting. It was fairly bright. I actually had, on, on that event, I actually had to dial in a quarter ND on the uh, on the one eight and the 1.4 lenses. Interesting. Alex, you had thought? Yeah, I, I, what I was going to say is that, is, is that the reason we're spending so much time on this is because this is, this is at medium to high-end events that you can get the cameras a little bit closer. I really believe this is going to take over. <laughs> like, you know, like it's not, I don't, I don't spend that much attention. And as everybody knows, I probably own, I mean, between own, I know, and myself, we probably own 20 Blackmagic cameras. But this is a place that is, this is just a hit a market that I think that we haven't seen before. And um, anyway, so, and I think that the problem you're going to have is that with half inch chips, with a PTZ, the problem is every time we've gone to full frame sensors, it's been a pain, you know, so it, we haven't been able to use full frame sensors at any price in a real great way because all that integration wasn't there. And now that it is, I think that a lot of the smaller frame, you know, sensors are going to have a hard time. They'll, they'll still be used in industrial corp, you know, low end corporate, but I think they're going to have a hard time dealing with the, the how you look at what Greg's showing. If, if people don't move to super 35 or higher on these things, they're going to have a hard time competing with people who do. Next question. And, and, Go ahead, Bill, if, Go I ahead, could just, if I could just jump in um, just to follow up on what Alex was saying. Absolutely. You know, just to talk about the reach of the camera for a little bit, because that's going to be one of the criticisms is, is that the only, you know, the, the longest power zoom lens available for it is that 28 to 135. Um, you, so the camera will take any E-mount lens um, that's available. So any, any lens from the Sony E-mount line will fit on this camera. And you can, so I could put a 70 to 200 uh, 2.8 lens on this camera with a 2X extender. And that's actually the longest lens that you can use on the camera and still get pan tilt. Now, again, because that 70 to 200 is not a uh, power zoom lens, you're limited to sort of um, either super 35, using super 35 to pop in and out or the clear image zoom to get that additional 2X of reach. But I mean, if you just think about it, so, so, you know, we've been talking about, well, we need to move the cameras closer. We need to move the cameras closer. And I think there's different reasons for wanting to do that. But you, you can use this uh, and get a lot of reach out of it. Because if you, uh, like, let's say that you put a 70 to 200, um, and I'm going to embarrass myself because I'm not good at math, but let's say you put a 70 to 200 on the camera with a 2X teleconverter. So now you've got a 400 on the long end, you've got a 400 millimeter lens. And then let's say that you put, you pop it into super 35 mode, so now you're going to get another 50% reach. So now you've got a uh, 600 millimeter lens, effective, equivalent, right? And then 
from that, you've got 2x reach. So you've really got a zoom range using the clear image zoom of 600 to 1200. So it's not that the lens doesn't have reach um, and, or the camera doesn't have reach. You do lose the range though. So like when you, when you are limited to just using clear image zoom, you just lose that dramatic range of being able to pull out to the really wide shot and zoom into the really tight shot. And those 70 to 200 Sony lenses are not light. So the motor system of this is robust enough to handle a big, long, pretty heavy lens like that? Yeah. So, so again, 70 to 200 is the longest lens that you can get pan tilt with, right? It won't zoom. It's not a, it, it'll clear image zoom, but it will not optical zoom, obviously, because it's not a, opt, it's not a power zoom lens. You can put, in theory, you can put a 600 f4, you can put a 400 2.8 on it, you can put a 100 to 400 on it, and you can put a 200 to 600 on it. But when you do that, you lose the pan tilt capability and you just have to lock the camera down so it becomes more of a fixed camera position. You can't, you can't move it. So if you're a I mean, wildlife you, you photographer with a blind, it's perfectly fine, but. Right. Or you could, I mean, you could, and you know, in theory, you could put a camera op on the camera and you know, and they could move it around, and you could put a you could put a display on it, and you could move it around and have a have a have a manned basically turn it into a manned camera, and they could still move it right. You just can't move it remotely with the controllers. I'm not sure I'd want to hand uh, operate a 600 millimeter lens unless <laughs> I had not had any coffee in two or three days. But regardless, let's go to the next question. Dave Shalmers from Glasgow, Scotland. Can anyone report back on the best lens choices for the FR7 in an event concert scenario? Alex. Yeah, I do a fair number of concerts. Um, you're not going to have the, you know, if you're in a big venue, you're not, I, I, I know that you can do a lot of the things that Greg's talking about, but it'll still be hard. I mean, these are long throws and, and so on and so forth. Um, so you're going to have big box lenses and so on. And, and so for a large venue, I think you're going to have trouble um, with that. But I wouldn't typically use a PTZ in a large event either, except for close-ups on the stage and so on and so forth. So I think that, especially if you're intercutting, I do... A lot of the concerts I do are with Aries and Venices. And so um, having something that like having Venices out there with the same close to the same color science and then putting these PTZs on stage, um, you know, start or, or down below stage where you can add them, I think would make a lot of sense of kind of mixing and matching those in a large environment, in a small environment, because the reality is the large environments where you're in arenas and stadiums, uh, average view time on a stream is very low. <laughs> so, so it's not a really compelling experience anyway. But if you get into a small environment, a small cabaret, you know, cabaret or, or cafe or even just small set, these things will take over, you know, and even if you have a handful of people there, this is an incredible, um, you know, setup for those kind of smaller concert environments. Kai had a comment. Yeah. For these larger concerts, you really want a lot of shots. And so I, I would be like Alex where I've got my box lens at the back of the house and we're shooting dead, dead center over the crowd and we're able to get that shot. But I would also couple it with a couple uh, FX sixes and get that uh, handheld where you got somebody on comms where you can say, Hey, get the drummer. He's moved because concerts are so unpredictable, at least the crazy ones that I've shot. Uh, you don't know where somebody's going to wind up. And so, you know, it's like two get over there to the stage, right. And you're over there pop and you can get that shot. I like the Fujinon 20 to 120. It's a nice versatile lens. And so you can put that, that e-mount. Uh, it's a PL. You can get the e-mount adapter and then you can use that as well. But uh, the autofocus on this is what's blowing me away because in comms, I've had, you know, the, the uh, director yelling, you know, uh, watch your focus too. And you're like, oh man, like uh, sometimes that, that little monitor and with all the chaos going on, it's tough to focus. So I really appreciate having these, these we call them robos. Uh, so having robos to be able to back you up. So the more that you could have around a, a performance, the better you know, options that your switcher operator has to, to take those shots. Let's go to the next question. 
Courtney Gooden from Hollywood, California. Is the pan a continuous 360, or are there stops on the pan that prevent it from doing a full 360-degree pan? This would allow you to plop it in the middle of a round table to shoot anyone in either direction. Alex? 360, but it does stop. <laughs> You'd have to come back around. I don't think it'll, it won't go all the way around and keep going. It, it'll need to go back. Greg, you had a comment? Yeah, yeah technically, I was, just, I was just looking up the spec on it. It's 340. It's 340 degrees, so it's not close, but not quite. Sorry, close. Close to 360. A little bit sharp, but not much. Next question. David Brady, New York, New York, asking, have you tried or is it possible to execute a rack focus shot during the uh, using a camera? Greg, do you know? Uh, absolutely. Let me just uh, flip this over here. and um, It's just a matter of tapping it, right? I mean, you can just sit there and go just focus on that. Yeah, I'm actually using the, uh, this is actually the hardware controller here. So I just have it on my desk in front of me. Um, so I'm just going to go into my web controller. And I'm just going to click on this camera behind me. And what's cool is I can actually change this rack speed. So uh, That's let nice. me, let me, I'm going to make it really, really slow. So I'm going to come back to me now. So you'll see. So That's, yeah, that's pretty, pretty cool. You can, I think there's five, <laughs> five levels of adjustment on that. Yeah. Well, actually, no, there's more than that. There's mm -hmm. seven. Yeah, it's great. Very nice. Next question. Next question from Samuel Nordvik in Norway. What is the maximum effective focal length the camera can do, including the clear image zoom? Greg, how far did you push it? I mean, theoretically, <laughs> you're up at 800. <laughs> or, no. I think we I think we got up to uh, like 600. 600 to 1200 with clear image zoom. <laughs> yeah. So 1200 millimeter, if you can't do it with that, I think it's time for a telescope. Right. With, a, with a 2X teleconverter on the lens, you, yeah. you could probably get up to 1200 millimeters with all the all the all the doodads. Next question. Guy Gleason, Seattle, Washington, asking, does the FR7 have facial recognition so you can lock it into a, spe a specific face in a crowd? Have they built AI into this? I, I'm getting kind of negative things from Greg. Greg, no? Not not that I know of. Not that I, I, not, not, not that I, I don't even know if that's on the radar, but again, NAB's coming up. So let's see. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I've got my fingers crossed. There's going to be some announcements there. I, I, don't know if anything's coming, but I, I'm I'm hoping that we're going to see some upgrades. I mean, there look there there are a few things that the camera needs. I mean, we're talking about um, like one of the frustrations that I have with the camera is that the minimum um, zoom speed on the camera is nowhere near the minimum zoom speed on the um, pan tilt. So like like right now, just make sure. So this is the this is the slowest zoom speed that I can use on the camera, right? And I think that that's actually a little bit too fast because if I go over to like the lowest uh, pan tilt speed and now I start to like try to actually move the lens and I remove the camera and zoom, like the zoom just outruns the movement of the camera, right? So I would like to see them slow the, um, add a little, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see them slow the zoom, the zoom speed down, right, yeah. to, to more closely match the speed of the pan tilt, because I find that that's a little, um, like, it's really hard to do. Like, I'd like to be able to, like, do the really wide shot and then do the, the kind of slow zoom in. And it's just, it's just really hard to get things to match because the zoom speed is so much faster than the pan tilt. Nice. Next question. 
Jesse Mills, San Francisco Bay Area. The upcoming UE-160 looks quite excellent and might blow the FR-7 out of the water. What do folks that have used the UE-150 think about this? Alex? Uh, I've, I've built uh, UA-150 kits and owned a couple <laughs> in the past. Um, and so uh, I think for long throws, you want to put it in the back of a room and, and, uh, and throw it long. I think that the, the, one, the 160 is going to do better. I also think that if you, um, uh, you want to use 3D, so if you want to get the telemetric data, uh, telemetry data out of the camera and into it for Unreal and so on and so forth, right now the UE-160 is the choice because of that. Barring any updates from Sony, um, those are there. Outside of that, if I'm doing the kind of events that I use PTZs for most of the time, um, I don't think that the UE-160 will be competitive with the FR7. Next question. Sky Gleason. Yeah. Oh, Greg. Sorry, sorry, but I was just yeah, going to say, like, the UE-160 is going to be a great camera, no doubt about it. It's going to be a fantastic camera, but you're still talking about the difference between a one-inch sensor and a full-frame sensor. So there's no way the UE-150 is going to be able to match the, um, the FR7 just in terms of the cinematic look and, um, and low-light capability just because the sensor size and the larger, pixel, the, the larger pixels on the sensor, it's never going to be able to match the, um, the image quality of the FR7. There you go. Uh, now let's go to the next question. All right, here's Guy Gleason from Seattle, Washington, Washington asking, is the FR7 also powered over Ethernet? Alex, it can be, and I think Greg can uh, throw it to you. Um, you know, I'll throw it to you, but but it can it uh, um, definitely can be. But the PoE is pretty tricky, right? <laughs> so go ahead, Greg. Yeah, so the, it, it's um, it is a little tricky on the PoE, and it's tricky because it requires ninety watts, right? And so I actually like the first switch that I bought, I, it, and it's PoE plus plus, and it's ninety, and it requires ninety watt watts per port. What's a little interesting is I was going to, I have this very nice, um, well, the switch options that you can get 90 watts out of are a little bit limited. And so the only switch that I was able to find that I could get 90 watts per port out of was the Netgear 4250 line, which I believe Guy Cochran mentioned earlier that I picked up one from DVE store. Thanks very much. But um, so that's what I have my cameras connected to right now. And what's nice about being able to use a switch like the 4250 is it's made for AV. It's got a lot of profiles built in that are specific to audio and video. And so like right now, my Sony cameras are on a VLAN inside of that switch. And so my the traffic between my computer and my cameras is not being um, broadcast out on the network overall. But just in terms of the PoE, um, it does take the 90 watts per port out, but I've been looking at it inside the switch because the switch will show you um, what the actual draw is. So the camera, like right now, just just um, pulling SDI and camera control, it's only running about 30 watts. The camera specs say that it needs 71 watts. And so I'm assuming that once you start doing other things like maybe streaming or sending SRT, um, and doing some actual encoding Actually, in the camera. Greg, on that, on that, it's the motors. So it's the pan that'll draw, and then the tilt. And if you're doing both at the same time, that's where it's going to maximize all that. But water. I mean, so even like I've, I've tested that, looking at the draw in this on the in the switch, though, guy, and I and I haven't not seen. I have yet to see the camera do anything, pull anything more than 30 watts on the switch. Wow. Along with that, and then just speaking of encoding, something that everybody should know is that as of right now, this may change. But as of right now, you cannot record in the camera. You can't even have media in the card slots and use power over Ethernet. So if you are going to intending to record in the camera, you're going to have to plug the AC adapter in. Important information to understand. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, 
What is the price and availability of the Sony FR7, and what is the price and availability of lenses for it? Greg, do you know the market have been looking out there since you bought it? Uh, let's see. I believe the camera itself, the body is, uh, I believe, ninety six ninety nine. If you they they also sell it as a bundle with the twenty eight to one thirty five lens, which I think is about twelve one ninety nine. And as far as I've seen, there's plenty of availability on them. After the initial launch, they were a little bit in short supply, but I I've pretty much seen. Uh, I think B and H has a pretty good stock of them, so they're pretty easy to get. And again. You don't have to go with the 28 to 135. It's the advantage of it is it's the only power zoom or the longest power zoom um, that you can get. You can put any Sony E mount lens on it. So, and along with that, so any of the um, uh, third parties like Sigma or Tamron that make E mount lenses for Sony cameras, you could you could use those lenses as well. Alex, you had a thought. Yeah, um, I would probably start with the 28 to 135 because of that powered lens. It, it, it's the most like this is a PTZ camera <laughs> that you get when you when you put it on. And then I would start adding lenses to it. Um, so if I got this, I would probably have this one so that I know I can zoom in and out and move around. But I'd probably buy a, a really fast 50 to, to, you know, to, to fill in if I was using it the way I'm using it now. Next question. Henry Ramos from Yonkers, New York, with Sony stock colors set up. A little cooler than most prefer. Have you made permanent adjustments? And are you able to mix FR7 with BRC line color-wise as well? Alex? It won't naturally match with the BRC. Um, I haven't made any adjustments. I'm using the stock. Like, this is what it, the camera comes out as. Um, but you can load LUTs into it. So you could all obviously take the output of this, take it into Resolve, make it look the way you want it to, or talk to Charles Klein about that. And then and then have it um, come back, load it into the camera, and then it'll look the way it's going to look. So you could definitely match it. You're going to end up matching the FR7 with the BRC because the BRC, I owned a, I've owned a lot of BRCs, and they um, they... Uh, have very limited color control. So you're going to end up getting them the way you want them to look and then match the FR7 because with the LUTs and everything else, you're going to have a lot more flexibility with the FR7 than you will with the BRCs. Next question. Bill Hops from San Jose, California, asking, is going in and out of Super 35 mode and clear image zoom as simple as hitting a button on the web controller? Any delays? Greg or Alex, do you know? Yeah, so I, I, I can address that real quick. So now you're seeing my web controller right here. And you'll see at the bottom of the screen right here, this is the Super 35. They make it really convenient. And it's just a button press, right? Now, uh, let, me, let me just say, too, one thing about being able to pop in and out of Super 35 mode. If you are recording in the camera, you cannot do this. So you have to choose whether you're going to stay in full frame mode or whether you're going to be in super 35 mode before you start recording. Um, you can stop recording and switch in and out if you want to. And you can actually, um, as you can see, you know, you can actually control recording right here in the web controller. So if you really needed the extra reach of super 35, you could stop your recording, pop it into super 35. Just remember to start it back up again after you do that. Um, and then the clear image zoom, uh, let me go back to here. So it's just a matter of, you know, pulling the controller. You, you do have to enable it in the back end. So you do have to go into the camera menu and turn on clear image zoom. And then it's really simple to use. One disadvantage of clear image zoom, and this is kind of a big one. And this is another one of those things that I expect is going to change at some point down the road. Um, but when you have clear image zoom enabled on the camera, you cannot use presets. Right, so you are full. You're limited to having to like move your shot each time. If I go back over to my other camera here, um, 
This is the 28 to 135. I have some presets set up on here. So uh, I thought I did. Let's see. Oh, you know what? Did I put this lens in? Maybe I put it in Super 35, so it's not going to let me do it. No. Well, I must have deleted my presets at some point. So sorry, guys. That's not that's actually not working for me right now. That's okay. Let's go on to the next question. Coming in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Compare the Insta360 Link webcam with a Sony FR7 as a webcam. Alex? The Link's a lot less expensive, and it's much smaller. <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a really useful one. That's the only difference, the right? I, I love the Link. I will say I love the Link. I have four of them. I use them all the time. And I think that uh, actually Greg is going to actually show you a side-by-side -side between those two. He was prepared. Oh, my gosh. Greg, oh, take great. it. Well, let's see. Here is a side-by-side. -side. So the left side is my InstaLink camera, and right here is my Sony camera. And uh, I can pull that InstaLink up. Yeah, it's not. That's InstaLink. I mean, the InstaLink is great. It's just not the same. Like, it's it's an entirely, yeah. that's like asking how, you know, how a Yugo will compare to a Ferrari. I can you know, see everything in your studio. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Let's move to the next question. Henry Ramos and Yonkers, New York, asking, using auto exposure as well, assuming the zoomed-in close shots need to open iris a bit more. Uh, how, does it, how does the auto iris work on this, Greg? So I'm not using auto iris. This is manual exposure, and okay. this lens is a fixed, uh, fixed aperture lens, and the 28 to 135 is an F4 um, fixed aperture, not fixed aperture, but a continuous aperture. So um, like the Canon camera, when I zoom that camera in and out at the wide end, it's 2.8 and at the long end, it's 4.5. Um, this lens is 1.2. Again, uh, this lens is 1.2. This is a prime lens. So the, the zoom that I'm using in it is a, is a digital zoom, albeit a, a, as Sony calls it, a lossless digital zoom. Um, but the 28 to 135, that is a... Um, that is an, an F4 lens, and it's F4 all the way through, so the exposure doesn't change. With all this low-light sensitivity, do you find you don't need to be really obsessive about really fast glass for this, or are you still using it because of that depth of field? You don't, and one, and one thing about this camera is that um, it does have dual ISOs, so I think it's got a base ISO of about 800, and then it's got a, it got a high ISO of about 12.8 that's a native ISO. So what's kind of funny is like as you, as you bump up the gain from the low, um, the low base, you, you sort of degrade the image quality slightly. It's really like, you really have to pay attention to notice that there's any difference. And then all of a sudden you go into the high, um, the high gain mode and, and then it just looks phenomenal again. So yeah, having dual, uh, dual native ISOs really makes a big difference in the camera. Let's go to the next question. Bill Hobson, San Jose, California. Bill asks, with a digital first event approaching in a small in-room audience, do you ever use a wide establishing shot or capture in-room Q&A? I'm assuming the PTZs will be in those shots. Alex? Uh, typically, we capture those a lot, <laughs> the, the wide establishing shot. But you only need the wide establishing shot typically to 
I mean, we can show the, the crowd if we want to, but a lot of times the wide one is really of the panel. And it, it's fine if you're doing a really wide and you're showing it. If you see wides on most shows, you'll see cameras that are there. Um, and you can, the, the, the interesting thing is the PTZs have a lot less uh, seat kills. So putting PTZs into the crowd actually you know, look, blends more into the situation than people. Because if I put a person in, I'm putting them on a riser, I'm separating them from the camera, I'm standing them up. There's a whole bunch of things there that are going to, that, that's going to kill 15, 20 seats behind them um, where I don't have that problem when I'm using PTZs. I'm not going to, you know, so typically, and then we put the PTZs on, what we do is typically put PTZs on either side of the stage to come back to the audience um, so that we can grab folks. And that's a lot less trouble than people um, because again, it's less of a distraction for the audience. Um, it's low, and if they're if it's dark in front of something dark, it kind of just fades into the background. Next question, Bill Hops from San Jose, California, back again with a question: Does pan and tilt movement work at the same time for a diagonal movement? That's probably a great question. Yep, sure does. So yeah, so well, hang on, I'm on the wrong camera here on my controller. So yeah, so I can. Can move this any way around. I want to move it. Nice, very nice. Get myself back in focus now, Greg. This has been an exceptional hour. Thank you so I think, much. I think Both that Greg might have had a couple of clips. We can go a little over. I mean, we're, this is probably the last time we'll have this uh, this year. I think I want to make sure we fully cover it. Um, is uh, but uh, um, Greg, did you have a couple? Uh, I think you had a couple yeah. things to show there. Yes, yeah, so I, I kind of had it cued to follow up with the stills that I showed. So. This is kind of the, the video from that angle that I showed with the 135, 1.8. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you can see it looks, it, it, it looks different when it's, when, when it's moving. You don't notice the things that are out of focus, but it still looks much more present. You know, like it just looks much more like a, like a film. Yep, absolutely. And then um, let me, so Bill was asking about a wide shot. So actually this is a 135, 1.8 as well. There's the wide shot. So that's sort of the, this, this is the 16 can, to 35 power zoom here. And you can really see how uh, how close they are to the background. It's just horrible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not really the small ideal stage. circumstance to yeah. shoot in. But yeah, you can see this is the woman on the end of the panel here. And then next shot over is kind of that really tight shot from the side. She doesn't look like she has much coming from that side of her face. And yet still that exposure is beautiful and she looks great. Yep, and, uh, and I had just a very subtle movement there because I just cleaned the frame and up on it a little bit. And I think that the thing to point out is that the short depth of field is even more important in an environment like this when everyone's backed up against something or you're in a smaller space because it makes everything look bigger than it, than it would in a smaller sensor. This is why we moved to Super 35s when we did a studio in D.C. was specifically to, to solve that problem, was to make everything look bigger than it actually is. This is the uh, 135, this is the 28 to 135 that I had on the other side of the stage. So this is a little, this is an F4. So back to that. That just shows just the really nice fall off of the lens. That's it's 1.8 all the way down. Yeah. And you can see like, like the lady is turning her head a little bit. I'm just pull that back. She has her head turned a little bit away from the camera and then the eye tracking, it, it doesn't, even when she turns her head almost away from the camera, the camera doesn't lose focus on her. It's very impressive. And this is, mean, this is a, probably a fairly tight, uh, clear image zoom shot here. Still separating it when she's like a foot away from the background, which is again, the thing that I pay a lot of attention to. <laughs> so. 
then um, this is a little, this is, um, this is the 135.18, but it's the, it's the furthest away from the camera. How many degrees out on either side are those cameras? Oh, they're roughly um, 30, 45, somewhere in between. This is the 28 to 135, again, from the left side. So it still, it still has some nice uh, short depth to it. It's just not as shallow as the, the 135.18. And then I wanted to show this little clip here at the end here. This is the part where the lady was talking quite a lot and she was moving her hands in front of her face frequently and the camera never, never lost focus on her. And again, this is, this is at, at 1.4 with an 85 millimeter lens. And so just being able to hold the focus, that shallow depth that uh, at 1.4, with um, with the movement across the face, I think is pretty amazing. And again, as someone who's done, I've done hundreds of these, and this is really hard to do <laughs> with what you show by yourself, you know. And to have that kind of, I mean, usually when you're a one one person show, you are really going to be at a disadvantage of not being able to have the best look because you're just trying to do the best you can with all those cameras that are either locked off or they're PTZs with smaller sensors. And I and again, I think this is going to. The reason we're spending so much time on it, we wanted to come back to it, was after I saw what Greg was working on, and we, we had covered this a little earlier, but when I saw what Greg was working on and I saw some of these clips specifically from this show, I, I was like, we need to, people need to understand that this is a big deal. Like, this is going to change the way a lot, we do a lot of these types of events. I wanted to show too, just if you look really closely on the transition of this shot here, you'll see that when it transitions, that the gentleman talking is not in tack focus. Mm-hmm. Let's see how far, I hope I didn't scroll it back too far. There, no, no, I did, I missed it. Should maybe the next cut. Right there. So let me just back that up just a tiny bit. It's hard, I'm in vMix here, so it's really hard to scrub in vMix. So when it cuts to the next shot, He's initially out of focus and then it'll grab, it'll grab really quick. It'll detect the movement. So I, I don't know if you can see it because it's so fast, but actually there's a little bit of roll. So it rolled a little bit right there. That's the only place I've seen the focus roll on it. I'm not sure that hurts it. Like it kind of has that kind of filmy kind of, I'm going to go out for a second and come back in. It's not, yeah. like, because it recovers so quickly. I'm not sure that's necessarily, we get paid to do that <laughs> at times. You know, And for, certainly for if he's shots. an engaging speaker, that will not stop the audience for one iota. They'll, they'll stick right with his story. So, yeah, so that's... Yeah, um, that's great. Greg, thank you so much. This has been really illuminating for a lot of us. You did a fabulous job, you and Alex, of, of cluing us in to this new technology that is coming. We're really excited to have... I, I hope we see you again as often as possible. Um, that pretty much takes care of the show for today. Don't forget, tomorrow's show is going to be equally exciting. Larry O'Connor from OWC is going to be on the panel. So if you are a fan of OWC, and many of us on the panel are quite big fans of OWC and have the uh, canceled checks to prove it, uh, that'll be an exciting show. Uh, Sunday, of course, is uh, Saturday and Sunday are the weekend shows. Um, we have to say some thank yous to all of the people who show up and do this every day, all the panelists. Uh, uh, our uh, 
everybody who's watching the show, everybody who's contributing to the show, the incredible behind-the-scenes crew we have who put in countless hours back there making this process, uh, process possible for everybody. Thank you all very much. Remember, After Hours is always open for your questions or comments 24-7, and we will be back tomorrow. So thank you for watching Office Hours. That was a really good show. So in one hour, we're doing the Black Magic Office there's a, there's uh, watch a party. There's a room. There's a black. There's a room in the. Uh, so in, uh, regular office hours. Look for the Black Magic after hours. Go Press all hours. After hours. After hours. There's a room for the Black Magic announcement. Thank you, Greg, for doing all the setups. Absolutely, side Greg. That was an excellent presentation. The side by sides were critical. Thank you. Crash zoom into extreme close up. <laughs> I think I may have seen enough of your pores, though. Just say. Go bug Chris Fenwick on the Ripple training until Black Magic starts. Great show, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Good to see you. Thanks, Bill. Great job, buddy. Getting there, learning the process.